There's a phenomenon in Hollywood dating back to the 1930s called twin movies, where two studios will put out the same or similar films within a year of one another. Sometimes this is intentional, sometimes it's a coincidence, but it's how we end up with two movies about Truman Capote in the same year, one starring Toby Jones, or two movies about Alfred Hitchcock in the same year, one starring Toby Jones. The end of the 20th century was full of these things, from Volcano and Dante's Peak, to Armageddon and Deep Impact, to Braveheart and Rob Roy. Well, today's film came out two years after Dances with Wolves, so it's an edge case for twin movies syndrome. But Kevin Costner and his fabulous buttocks cast a large shadow over the early 90s, garnering awards and acclaim. So this Michael Mann film about a white guy who found acceptance, community, and family in an adopted tribe of American Indians was seen at the time as riding Dances with Wolves coattails. But that gross oversimplification of a plot synopsis is about where the similarities end. This film is a gripping romantic action-adventure, salvaged from the wreckage of one of the most boring novels ever to grace an English professor's bookshelf. Seriously, have you tried reading James Fenimore Cooper? He sucks. That's not even an opinion, it's scientific fact. Used as anything other than a non-addictive sleep aid to battle moderate to severe insomnia, his books are hot garbage. So starting with his cringy noble savage archetypes as a framework isn't exactly setting yourself up for success. And Michael Mann, being best known before and since for adult dramas about criminals and psychopaths, is an odd choice to helm an adaptation of a 19th century author's depiction of 18th century colonial America. So who did Mann cast as the first action hero of American literature? The Rambo of his day, whose name is still synonymous with never-miss marksmanship almost two centuries later. Daniel Day-Lewis, obviously. The guy who just won an Oscar for playing an Irish painter with cerebral palsy. Makes perfect sense. Did you know this is the only action role in his entire resume? The next closest thing is Gangs of New York. So we have hot garbage source material, a director who's never made an historical epic, and an action star who has never fired a gun. To borrow a line from Mel Brooks, where did they go right? Well, they went right in a lot of ways, it turns out, because as unlikely as it sounds from that description, this film would endure to become a popular favorite over the subsequent decades, while its more successful contemporaries have faded into relative obscurity. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So, kind of face to the north, and then real subtle like turn left, with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we welcome special guest, Daniele Bolelli. Yes, we have two Danieles on this episode, relax, you'll be fine. To help us unpack this dynamic 1992 adaptation of James Fenimore Cooper's excruciatingly dull tale about the French and Indian War. The Last of the Mohicans. Call it in. It's danger close. Today we are joined by author, martial artist, and university professor Daniele Bolelli. He's the host of two very popular podcasts, The Drunken Taoist and History on Fire, one of my personal favorites. He has written several nonfiction books, including Create Your Own Religion and Not Afraid on Fear, Heartbreak, 
Raising a Baby Girl, and Cage Fighting. He teaches many topics, including history and American Indian studies at CSU Long Beach and Santa Monica College. He was very generous with his time, but was only able to stay for the first half of the show, and then we continued the discussion without him for the second half. Thanks to the magic of editing, we brought him back for the breakdown and final thoughts. A big thank you to Daniele for joining us and giving us some insight on the history behind the film. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. I am here today with my partners as usual. Katie. And Liam. And today we are here to discuss Last of the Mohicans from 1992. And we have a very special guest that I introduced earlier, so you know a little bit more about his background. But Daniele Bolelli is here with us. He offered to come on the show, and uh, I asked him what film he would love to talk about. And this was one of the first ones that came up on his list. I wish we could also do Conan the Barbarian, but maybe at a later date, because I know your feelings about that one. But uh, Daniele, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to start with Katie's mission briefing, and then we will pass the ball to you. Based on both the 1826 novel and the 1936 film of the same name, Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans strives to be as authentic as possible to the time being portrayed, while also updating the story and the sensibilities for a more modern age. Famously, the 1936 film was the first film that Mann remembers watching as a child, and it helped inspire him to become a director. He co-wrote the script with Christopher Crowe and worked very hard to get this made. His efforts were considered instrumental in getting Daniel Day-Lewis, who was huge at the time, to agree to take the role. To prepare for the film, as everyone knows, they both lived in the woods for a while in Alabama, learning to live off the land and all of that. The props, costumes, and even Fort William Henry were meticulously recreated for the film using original techniques and to historical specifications. The film received mixed, but generally positive reviews. It was praised for adapting a difficult-to-read book into an exciting and interesting story, and for using indigenous actors, including American Indian activist Russell Means. Day-Lewis and Stowe were both highly lauded for their performances, and the film solidified Day-Lewis's already impressive reputation as one of the best actors working at the time. However, some folks had issues with the slow pacing, the vague description of military events, and the film only received an Oscar nod in the form of a win for Best Sound, but no other nominations. It did very respectfully at the box office, though, with $140 million, considering it only had a $40 million budget. So I have two questions for us to start off with today. The more serious of which being, what's everybody's history with this film and the story in general? But... Before we get to that, in a callback to our one of our previous discussions on this show, and I am so excited to hear our guests answer, more than one review called this film swashbuckling. And we have had discussions about what exactly that means and whether or not a film falls into that category before. So before we dive into our history with the film, I want to know, do we think this qualifies as swashbuckling? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a strong opinion. Good. <laughs> I like that. Liam has very strong opinions on swashbuckling. Zero buckles were swashed in this movie. <laughs> what about swashes buckled? There was zero swashes buckled. There was neither. In any direction, up or down, it, it's not a thing. What's the last thing we covered that qualified? Vikings? The Kirk Douglas Vikings. I believe that's where the discussion originated. Yeah. Again, even this, like, I, I, and I believe we came down on the Vikings not being swashbuckling. <laughs> 
Was it mentioned in uh, the Kingdom of Heaven episode? I feel like there was some... I think there was some of that, too, because they they spent some time on the sea. Yeah, I think if, uh, Vikings fell more into uh, sandals and sand or sandals. Swords and, and sandals. Swords and sandals. Daniele, what, what's, what do you think of when you think of swashbuckling? I tend to, I, in general, when it comes to definitions, I'm not a big friend of the dictionary, I think. <laughs> so I'm always on the, what do we mean exactly? And of course, you know, the definition tends to change depending on who you ask a lot. So I'm kind of in the, whatever you call it, I'll like or not like the movie. I don't necessarily, like some of these definitions, even like the sword and sandal movies, which ones qualify, which ones don't? Does it have to be specific Roman gladiators or does it have, does it include, you know, and all those things are sort of personal calls. Uh, where do you want to exactly draw the boundary? So I tend to be open-ended. If you guys had said, yeah, it totally qualifies, I wouldn't have been any more. <laughs> I would be like that or whatever, depending on how you define it, I think. it's. I, I think what we decided was with the Vikings that it was swords and sandals without the sandals. <laughs> right, exactly. Like there was no sand for the sandals, but yes. other than it was just swords and doles. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think in this there's plenty of swords, but there's such a mix of weaponry in this that I, I just yep. don't, I don't know if there's enough swords to call it swords in anything, because between right. bayonets and cannons and everything else. Way too much emphasis on marksmanship for a swashbuckler. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Even yes. the Three Musketeers, which is about musketeers, is more swashbuckly than this. Yeah. Fair. I would agree. And th- there's not that, there's, well, I guess the British do have a lot of buckles on them. <laughs> oh my god i didn't notice that i was like wow guys that's a lot yeah i didn't know what that weird metal piece was that they wear that's like not armor but not a necklace yeah it's it looks like it's like a, a thing from old plate armor yeah i don't know what that is but the bigger question is what is everybody's history with this have you read the book seen the other movies so I, let's see, 1992, I was uh, 18 years old. I watched it at the time in theaters. I remember having a blast. I just moved to United States. So I think it was one of the first movies that I watched in US first. Nice. And then I went back to Italy for Christmas vacation. And I remember watching it with my friends there in Italian. So I had the double track <laughs> that way in the span of a few months. And I remember loving it. I just had a blast with it. I thought it was uh, a really interesting portrayal of a time in history that very few movies focus on. You don't really see too many French and Indian war kind of movies. I had to watch when I was a little kid, and I don't remember any of it, the original 1930, 1936, we said? I yep. think so. The 36 movie, and I remember enjoying it at the time, but I have zero memory of it. I was probably, I don't know, seven years old or something when I watched it. Not in 1936, but... <laughs> <laughs> You'd be forgiven for not remembering the exact year, because this has been put to screen 11 times, including this oh, movie. Wow. So there are, there's okay. a silent one, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that was kind of my impact where I felt like there was, uh, I was fascinated with that historical period, which I knew very little about at the time. And it became something that I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And as such, yeah, I definitely had a blast with, uh, like, my initial impact was a positive one. And that was kind of the heyday, too. It was a particular period in cinematography where the early 90s were huge on Native American content. Whereas uh, through the 80s, for example, there was very little. Following the 90s, there was very little for a good decade or two. 
that particular period that started out with Dances with Wolves, and of course, the second Dances with Wolves won three zillion Oscars. Of course, everybody <laughs> in Hollywood wanted to do something about Native American material. And Last of the Mohicans was one of the early ones that came in pretty early on that wave that had been opened by Dances with Wolves. Yeah, because Dances with Wolves was 1990, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then yep. this was just two years after that. The other the other one that I remember as being part of that wave that is largely forgotten uh-huh. was actually a modern crime mystery drama called Thunderheart with Val Kilmer. Yep. Yep. That one was brought yep. up a lot as well in the room. Which was really good, actually. I thought that was a pretty solid movie, but very, very different from the historical epics that we had been seeing before. Mm-hmm. Agreed, but that was fantastic. I agree with you. That was a really good movie. So, Dan, what about you? What was your experience with this? As is common, I don't remember my very first experience. I, I feel like if I'd seen this in theaters, I would remember. So I was like nine when this came out, so probably a little too young for theaters, but I know this is one that was on repeat with my dad and I. So definitely one that I have tons of nostalgia for and I have to really try and extricate myself from my nostalgia because I hear the sweeping score from the first 10 seconds. I cried, I think, five times rewatching the theatrical. And like, I've seen this movie, you know, I watch it at once every couple of months and I still couldn't stop myself. I literally looked at my girlfriend. And I was like, what is wrong with me? I can't stop crying. This is ridiculous. So that sweeping score just gets to me every time. And for me, I haven't watched Dance with Wolves in a while. But I know there are things about the Native American depiction and some other things that while I still think it's a great movie, it has aged a little bit for me. This one comes across much more timeless in my eyes, and I don't feel that much of a difference from the early 90s when I watched it to now. But again, I'm very biased. Liam, what about you? So I haven't read the book, but it wasn't for not trying. (laughs) (laughs) I made the attempt after seeing the movie because I saw the movie and and I loved it and I tried to read the book. Only to quickly realize that it sucks. Yeah. It's two out of five, right? It's a five book series of adventure series. Yes. Yeah. The leather stocking tales. They weren't written, I think, in order either. Mm. But there's a, a quote from Oscar Wilde that said, if you ever happen upon a storage crate that's labeled American dry goods, you can be fairly certain it contains nothing but their novels. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure he was referring directly to James Fenimore Cooper. And perhaps Nathaniel Hawthorne. Maybe. Well, I don't know. Hawthorne is a breeze compared to compared to Cooper. That's true. I was able to make it through the Scarlet Letter. It's a, it's a riveting tale, the Scarlet Letter, compared to anything that Cooper put to paper. It's certainly much lustier than anything Cooper put out into the world. Yeah, this this in Italian we call un mattone, a brick. Yeah. That's what you call a book that's just unreadable. <laughs> yeah, I got uh, in a moment of uh, over-enthusiasm, I, I got a uh, thing that had all of his novels, it had Last of the Mohicans, it had the full up the third the four there were like five books in one and i went through the first and i was like you got to be kidding this is what it's based on this is atrociously bad yeah you you lock me in a room with like last of the mohicans infinite jest and a gun and i'm not making it out of that room alive (laughs) yeah 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 that was bad oh my god So my dad's always been a very huge history buff and the French and Indian war is hands down his favorite 
historical period, always has been since he was little. So when this movie came out, I was 10 years old. This was the first R-rated movie I was allowed to see. Ooh. So this was the first one that I saw in the theater. My dad took me, kind of like my dad and I took my son Kieran to see 1917 in the theater. And that was his first R-rated movie that he saw in the theater. So that's one of his favorites. Like that, this has always been one of my favorites since I saw it. It wasn't the first R-rated movie I saw, but it was the first one that I saw with permission. Ah. I, I accidentally watched The Untouchables once. Accidentally. So there was an Untouchables TV show that I used to watch a lot, like in the early 90s. And I was allowed to watch that. And then I saw that the movie was on HBO. And I was like, I love The Untouchables. And I watched it. And then I found out afterwards. They were like, you know, that's rated R. You're not allowed to watch that. I was like, oh, sorry. (laughs) Oops. It happens. But no, this movie, I remember seeing the trailers for it. I remember what theater I saw it in. It was just a really memorable experience for me. I had it on VHS, wore the VHS out and then didn't watch it again for a good number of years because all of the subsequent versions after the VHS that I had were various iterations of a director's cut, which this was also the movie that taught me not to trust director's cuts. Yeah. More than any other, probably I never seen the because it was atrocious. Yeah, exactly. I've never seen such a difference between the theatrical version and the re- director's cut, where the director cut is so much worse than mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than the original. And and it's amazing because he chopped it up like three different times, each time tweaking it a little, and each time was absolutely not awful. I mean, it's still a great movie, but like often some of the very best lines of dialogue they get cut out. Yeah, and it was it was all of Daniel Day Lewis's little side quips, which really yeah. I <laughs> felt helped like it construct the character. Yep. Apart from like the heroic things that he does, it really sort of rounded him out. Uh-huh. And he cut out all of that and just filled it in with awkward pauses or just like yep. pauses that should have been there and weren't anymore. I'd never seen a director's cut that removed things. I was used to them adding stuff back in. Yeah. Right. That is the big complaint about the movie, which otherwise I've loved so much. How can you take something that works so perfectly in the theatrical version? And, uh, and again, not it's so good that you can't screw it up too bad. So it's still a good movie. If you have never seen the theatrical version and you just ran the DVD, it's still a great movie. But if you know what you're missing from the theatrical, it pisses you off to think like, why did you have to cut some of the best lines out of mm-hmm. it? Some moments there were, and it's really bizarre. Cause as you said, usually directors cut ad material that you can just safely ignore, but you still have the good stuff that you love. Or maybe the new material is great. And then it adds to it. It never takes away the good stuff. And so that has been one of my, I, I still think I have a VCR primarily to be able to see the theatrical version. Right. <laughs> well, I was very pleased with the Blu-ray because the Blu-ray, the director's definitive edition, it's not quite the theatrical edition, but he put back probably 95% of the stuff that he cut out. Okay. It's better than the first director's cut. Leaps and bounds better. Because the first director's cut even cut out his, you kind of face to the north and then real subtle, like turn left line, which is one of my favorite lines. No way. Oh, that's so bad. Such a good line. Exactly. Oh my God. It's so perfect. There is a war on. How is it? You are heading west. 
Well, we kind of face to the north and real sudden, like, turn left. Yeah, it's one of the best lines on the film. Yep. I remember flinching when I saw the director's cut and heard that that was missing. Right? Yep. Okay, so I want to pass it to Katie, but because we probably won't have time to get back into these versions later, I figure I might as well say this now. First of all, I have good news for everyone. Michael Mann somehow retains the U.S. cuts of like all his films. So he I don't know where he gets the funding, but he can go back in and just chop things up however many times he wants. However, if you get an international version of this, you can get a double disc that has the original theatrical in really, really nice I think in 1080 Blu-ray and then the definitive directors. Oh, definitely the Australian version. You can get that. And I think like German and some European ones. So if you go on Amazon, you can get the Australian version. That is what I have. And when I want to watch this just for pure enjoyment, I watch the original theatrical. I did watch the definitive uh, directors as well. To me, one of the main problems very briefly is for some reason he went in and messed with the color grading and the contrast in the night scenes and made them impossible to see like Cora and uh, Hawkeye talking. You can't see them at all. And when the uh, who are the guys with the half shaved head in the front? What tribe is that? Is it, were those the Huron? No, no. But it's this. Oh, the Abenaki. They figure out they're in the burial ground and they back up. You can't even see the burial yeah. The the tree burial spot. I'm like, why did he do this? And then the fort scenes inside when they're talking with uh, Monroe are super yellow. Like he just cranked up the yellow to, I yeah. guess, make it more like candlelight. So anyways, without getting into too much detail on the differences, my only issue is if you're going to do it, do it the way Ridley Scott did the final cut of Blade Runner. He hired a guy, did all the production. And then when it came out. They put out their new final cut, but they also put out every other version that everybody loves. So if you love a different version and you disagree with the director, you have a way to watch that. That's my main problem. Like, it's your film. Do what you got to do. But don't disrespect fans that made you who you are and love that theatrical. Don't be George Lucas. Yeah. George Lucas is the worst example, but let's move on. I believe this might have been Katie's first time. It was. Okay, so I'm very curious to hear what your experience was, because you don't have any of that nostalgia. So, yes, this was my first time watching the movie. So I grew up hearing about this from my mom, because I was I was homeschooled up until high school, which is a thing. And uh, my mom still talks about her experience with the book, where I think she read it in, like, last year of middle school. And everybody was tasked with reading the book. And I think she was like, I was one of the only people who actually read the whole thing. And so it was this point of pride for her. And my mom is a huge reader. Mad respect. So she was like, but you don't ever have to read the book. And I don't know if that's why she didn't watch this. My mom is a huge movie nerd, as I've talked about. And she told me, she's like, I've never seen that. I was like, really? I mean, it's it was 92 peak mom movie watching time. <laughs> But I was seven when this came out. So it was definitely not something they would have let me watch. And then it just kind of fell into a blind spot. But I did read a lot of stories that are based on what this guy's childhood would have been like as someone who was adopted into a tribe of indigenous folks. So there are several of them. The most famous one by uh, Lois Lansky called Indian Captive, which is based on the true story of Mary Jemison, who stayed with the tribe and eventually became that time's equivalent of like an activist for them. So it's, it's weird that I haven't watched it 
And I was glad to get to sit down and watch it. And I watched the definitive director's edition, what's on Amazon for streaming. It's it's the second best version you can possibly get your hands on. But now I am I am actually fascinated to see the theatrical version because what you guys are talking about like really would have improved the film oh yeah i'll ship it to you yeah and one of the lines that is still missing from the definitive director's cut is when he shows up to the fort and all of his buddies see him there and it's like nathaniel Uncas, thought you and nathaniel weren't joining up you didn't just dropped in to see how you boys are doing they cut that out yeah, you're right. It's all the comedy slash just... I remember that scene and how weird his reaction is because there's like this moment where he's, oh, I thought you weren't joining up. And then it like cuts to him. And it just says, we didn't. And then just silence. Why did you have this scene in here to begin with if this is all it was? But now it makes so much more sense that there was also this additional funnier line. Oh, I'm so mad. Katie definitely needs to watch the better version of this film. I guess so. I, I could definitely see, like, that's what this needed is just a, a little bit more. A little bit more of a sprinkle of Daniel Day-Lewis being sassy Daniel Day-Lewis. So that's my history with this. I want to hand the floor to Daniele. Let's jump into the history here a little bit. I prepared myself enough that I could talk about it on my own had you not made it to this episode. And so I read a lot about the Seven Years' War, which is, I think, the more global conflict here, and then the French and India War, which is what the North Americans call this. And it's a little confusing because the years are like 1754 to 1763. So I'm like, so this is nine years, really? So first things first, Daniele, could you enlighten us a little bit on this North American conflict and the bigger global conflict? Sure, because the global one, the Seven Years' War, is 1756 to 63. Okay. However, the war begins in North America in 1754 and ends in North America before the global one. So it actually ends in North America by 1760. Ah, okay. So there are these two wars that are basically one is the subset of the other, but one also starts the, the bigger war and dance before the bigger war. So in that sense, it's kind of complicated. In some ways, couldn't one argue that George Washington started this war in a way? Yeah, completely did. <laughs> in my hometown, thank you very much. Yeah, near Pittsburgh. <gasps> really? Yeah. yeah, you're right outside of Pittsburgh at Fort Necessity. Oh my God. Out in, not Ligonier, where it's out in Fayette County somewhere. Yep. I've been there. They, they rebuilt it and you can like tour the basically just logs that they stuck in the ground and called it a fort. Yeah, because essentially what happens there is that uh, controlling the forks of the Ohio River was a big deal. You would control the trade in all the area. And everybody wanted to get their hands on it. The French wanted to get their hands on it. The British, and even saying the British is stupid because they weren't really the British. They were different colonies, like Pennsylvania wanted it and Virginia also wanted it. And they were kind of competing with one another in addition to competing with the French. The French eventually take over. And they, you know, originally some settlers from Virginia go to build a fort. The French arrive, say, thank you for starting to build our fort. Now you guys can leave and take <laughs> over the spot. And then the governor of Virginia sends a 21-year-old George Washington in this super delicate diplomatic mission to go tell the French, hey, that's our land. They have their dinner with wine and cheese and the French politely telling, yeah, right, go back home, young boy, because no, this is our land, screw you. He goes back home and the governor of Virginia now gives him men to go back. And the idea is to try to take the whole thing by force. 
the initial George Washington mission is a complete disaster because he runs into some French troops in the woods. The whole thing turns into a battle with Washington kind of losing control of the situation the first few seconds. And the French, when they capture, after killing a bunch of them, the British with some of their native allies capture the French. The French are like, what the hell did you do? We are coming to talk with you on a diplomatic mission, which may or may not have been true. Nobody knows for sure. But the big blunder then takes place where one of the native allies of George Washington walks up to the French uh, commander who was now a prisoner of war. That was Jamonville. Yep. And puts, uh, and puts an axe in his head. <laughs> Jesus. And this was done intentionally because the whole thing is that this guy had staked his reputation on the idea of an alliance with the British. He did not want the British and the French to make peace because in his own tribe, there was a pro-French side and a pro-British side. He oh. wanted to make sure. So he was like, ah, we're not making peace here. So he killed this guy, at which point now Washington is screwed because he's the commanding officer that allowed this to happen. And that's when things got ugly. They make it back to this fort, French and their native allies surround them. They only let go Washington on the promise that he has to sign this document admitting to the murder of this French officer who was a prisoner of war. The second Washington and these guys leave and get back to Virginia, he starts saying, well, you know, it was dark. There was just candlelight. I couldn't quite read the document. I didn't see what I was signing. I don't read French. Yeah, it's like, uh, no, it just doesn't count. But of course, by that point, France said uh, irrational to say we have a war on because you guys have committed a war crime. And so that's kind of how it gets the ball rolling. In fact, they refer to that initial battle between Washington and the French as sort of the shot around the world because it was this one thing in the backwoods of North America that started the spark of this global conflict that in many ways you can refer to it as the First World War before there was a First World War because this is a conflict that's fought in North America, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, and in Europe. So if you want to talk about a global conflict, this is it. There's nothing else before it where these happen. And if you're looking in terms of geographic extension, it's probably even bigger than World War I in that regard. Because it's the showdown between these two imperial powers, between France and England, and they fought everywhere they had colonies, which is to say pretty much on every other continent. That's kind of how the two intertwine. The build-up to this have been going on for a while because the rivalry between the French and the British have been going on even long before the specific incident about the forks of the Ohio River. There was a rivalry for trade and they were different. Most of the tribes were allied with the French because the French were considerably less intent on stealing their land than the British. But of course, some tribes will be allied with the British. If your tribal enemies are allied with the French, then, well, you need some European supporters, so you join the British. So if you want to really go back, there were even instances of the beginning of this conflict a couple of years earlier, where in one case, there was uh, an important native leader who had decided to start this large village that was entirely allied with the British. Native allies of the French are like, hey, we need to do something about these guys because they are taking over the trade in this area. The French weren't doing much about it. So this native group attacked another native group. 
And then it um, wasn't much of a battle except for the fact that then they killed this leader. And just to drive a point home about, uh, hey, don't trade with the British. They, in sight of everybody, they cook this guy and date him. Oh, which is always a good way to deliver the point of, uh, hey, don't do this. It really communicates. Yeah? It's a statement. Yeah. We are serious about no trade. Yes. So some of these even predates the Washington thing. So they, it was kind of a war in the making. And, and this is not exactly a surprise because the French and the British had fought multiple wars in the preceding hundred years. Never mind even before then, but particularly in the preceding hundred years, there have been quite a few of them. How weird that just as a matter of perspective and nomenclature, we could be talking about this as World War One, mm-hmm. and then World War One as World War Two, yeah. and World War Two as World War Three, just in terms of nomenclature. Like even right. I read that Churchill called this the First World War because, yeah. as we all know, the First World War was known as the Great War at the time. Mm-hmm. Nobody called it the First mm-hmm. World War right. until they knew later that there was a second. It's because they didn't think there was going to be a second one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess before we get into the plot of the film, while we're on history real quick, Daniela, I wanted to ask, because it's like, on the one hand, this film does a really good job depicting the different native tribes. And you can clearly see that based on the preparation that they did, Michael Mann mentions this in the making of the film, which I recommend everyone to watch. And his commentary is also very detailed and he goes into a lot of background. But uh, for example, in reference to Magua's tattoos, he references the very famous The Death of Wolf painting. And if you look at the detail of the native in this, you can see the skull fusion lines that are tattooed on the side of Magua's head are on this native as well as his arms. Or the Abenaki have the classic kind of shaved head in the front and then longer hair in the back. So you can see they put a lot of effort into making these tribes distinct. But as non-historians, it's really easy to watch this and get confused. And I'm like, okay, you hear the Huron mentioned and you know the Mohicans are in this, at least three of them because they're the main characters. But I was wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit of background on what tribes were allied with the British and the French in the scope of this story that we see. So in the small you know, Hudson River Valley, what is going on with the tribes here? Sure. Because from the from the movie, it almost looks like a high school gym class where it's just like divvied up into shirts and skins. It's like, okay, this team has shirts on, this team does not. And usually the not side is with the French and the shirt side is with the British, which is probably how it would go anyway. Yeah, it's uh, to say that is a complicated thing is to put it very mildly, because the reality is that not only each tribe was different from the next, but also within each tribe, they often were not a single political entity. A tribe meant that you speak the same language, you have the same culture, you may even be related but each village is politically independent. So you may have uh, three villages of one tribe that decide to do one thing, and a village from the very same tribe who joins the opposite side. Not unlike American politics today. Right. It's, it's a mess, right? It's a, it's a real life, as you say. You know, it's something where it's not that clean cut, where it's like, not only you don't have like all the natives on one side, but even among the natives, you don't even have... Uh, each tribe fully on one side in all circumstances. Each village would make its own decision. And it would be, you join the French, you join the British, you stay neutral, or sometimes you join one of them for one battle, but then you decided you don't want to really deal with the rest of the war and you become neutral. 
or things may even turn that you switch sides. And the reality of it, which I think is what the movie does in a fascinating kind of way, even though not being a documentary, they don't break it down in details. It does a good job to give you the feeling of the complexity of it all, that this is not a French versus British war. Or rather, it is that thing, but in addition, you have uh, all the different tribes, each one making choices for their own self-benefit. They are not simply allies of one or the other. You have even scenes like where you start getting the glimpses of what will become the American Revolution, where you have colonial settlers who are not necessarily on board with what the British crown is doing. So while technically they are British, they are not really on board with the British. So that part of the movie is accurate then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were plenty, like even at the very beginning, where what happens after the whole Washington debacle is that in 1755, the British send their first major army to North America under this guy, uh, Braddock. And Braddock essentially follows the same path going back to the forks of the Ohio, where Pittsburgh is today, and is trying to go after the fort. And, you know, if he gets there, his army is way too big. They are going to take the fort in no time. And what happens is that enough native allies join the French that they set up an ambush in the forest and they just demolish the British army. They kill Braddock. Uh, Washington himself gets this close to getting shot. They say he had multiple bullet holes through his clothes that somehow passed through his clothes but didn't hit his body. Whoa. And uh, he had multiple horses shot from under him and stuff. And it's a complete disaster for the British. And it's the first major battle of this war that takes place in 1755. Yeah, the Battle of uh, Monongahela. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Daniela, I wanted to give you a quote and ask you a question about this in particular, because as an event, I of all my reading, this one stood out. Mm-hmm. First of all, in one of my books on the on the wars i have a quote from braddock himself and it says mm-hmm. it says oh my god i've been shot <laughs> ow ow it hurts make <laughs> it stop this was a huge mistake no no it's before the battle this is general braddock immediately before being defeated and mortally wounded by indians at the battle of monongahela where the casualty rate was 85 percent quote savages may indeed be a formidable enemy to your american militia But upon the king's regular and disciplined troops, sir, it is impossible they should make an impression. So, like, those are almost his last words, which is insane. And the thing that stuck out to me about this is in various other people, historians that have looked at this film and commented on the accuracy of it, they talk about the massacre of Fort William Henry, which is actually after they've left the fort and they're in that prairie, right? And they get ambushed by all the natives. And what the film tries to set up is it tries to show you the very linear Napoleonic combat tactics of the British, which if you go back and watch, I believe it's in the director's cut. So the second cut of the film, there's actually a battle between the British and the French where they come out of the fort while Nathaniel is covering the couriers and they're doing the sniping scene. They come out and they show you actually really effective use of this kind of like volley fire. And the comment I found really interesting was someone watching this battle and saying, you know, by this time, the British had learned how to fight more like skirmishers and were no longer doing this. And the place where they learned that was at the battle where Braddock died at the Battle of Monongahela. So 
I get why they show it in the film because it is important to show how the traditional tactic did not work against essentially guerrilla tactics, but it wasn't in this particular instance. It was actually earlier. Do you jive with that, Daniela? Is that yeah? And they show it in that first engagement in the first battle when you have this British column who's taking the ladies uh, toward uh, the very first ambush. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's a small-scale engagement, but they it's basically a small version of uh, what Braddock's fight would have been, where you have these lines of British soldiers with a ready, aim, fire, and natives hiding behind a tree, waiting for them to shoot, and then start picking them apart. In this case, they close in on them and go kill them. In the battle with Braddock, they simply start sharpshooting them from behind the trees. And, you know, the British were shooting at nothing, essentially, because their targets were behind trees. And then as soon as they shot their volley, somebody pops up and kill a British officer. And then they hide again. And they kept doing it until they wiped them out. And that was clearly that example of the old war tactics not working in uh, in the new world. Well, and also in that scene in the, the forest, that first battle scene, I almost feel like there's not enough of them to make that strategy work because right. the whole idea is you have the two front rows that fire on command and it's just a wall of musket balls coming at you. And then behind that is the next two rows of guys loading their rifle or loading right. their muskets. Yeah. Those guys go to the back. These guys go to the front and you have like three or four of those just ready. So it can be like a more continuous wall. You can't right. do that with two lines of dudes. Mm-hmm. A, a thing that would become that would be perfected in World War One with a constant bombardment. Right. Another cool detail I saw was that by the time the British had gotten into enough engagements, they had mostly dropped their short sabers and picked up tomahawks because they found mm-hmm. tomahawks to be much more efficient or effective in this type of combat. Well, and Daniela, one thing that you'd said before that I think was in a very succinct, but I think effective way shown in the film just as far as the variations even within the tribes towards the end when magua gets the ruling that he doesn't like from the sashim and he says you know basically get wrecked i'm going to go join those other hurons in the lakes those hurons are the better hurons like Mm -hmm. exactly you guys suck exactly yep yep i'm going to take my blonde and go home yeah, which is why exactly it's hard to generalize, which would be nice for the for the point of view of simplicity of saying this tribe had this stance throughout the entire war. And usually they didn't through the entire war and it wasn't the whole tribe. And so that's what makes things uh, more complicated. And per your point regarding the British tactics, there's uh, there's one thing that's actually really interesting to take a look at that he do not refer to in the movie in any way, shape or form, but it's very much to the point you are making. Uh, this group called the Rogers Rangers. The Rogers Rangers were organized by this ma- uh, major called Robert Rogers. And they were built on the premise that this is a guerrilla war. This is not a European style war. And so to be effective against the tribes and the French, who realistically did not have the numbers to fight the regular European style wars, they simply did not have those kind of resources. Yeah, 20 to 1 is usually the number I see a lot, right? In terms of British to French ratio. Yeah, it, they weren't even close, right? So they had to fight guerrilla style and they were extremely effective at it. And so the response was with people like Roger Rangers who organized and fought the same way. They dressed not in uniform. They dressed like backwoods hunters they use tomahawks they use mobility they use all these things 
And incidentally, since I mentioned cannibalism on one side earlier, it's worth mentioning that uh, Rogers Rangers are famous for being able to lead this raid against a native village deep into Canada. And on the way back, since they were running out of food, they end up eating some of their native prisoners of war. So, oh my God. Yeah. Eating people was a thing. Desperation, man. Yeah. So this was the British eating the natives in this. Hope they brought the right leg rub. <laughs> leg rub. Cannibalism makes all stories a little bit better. So to move from history into the production, I was going to say that something that's been brought up by all of us already is that while there are things you can pick out and historical quote unquote inaccuracies or details that are different, which clearly everything was well researched. So when it's different, there was a choice to make it different. That's just because they were telling a story and doing it the way they were doing it. But when you take all of these details and start to add them up, it gives you the right feeling of this time period right i think that's something the critics and all of us here agree with even if some of the accuracy is off some of the things are oversimplified or just left vague because it was complicated i'll mention one thing to lead us off into it and then i want to pass it off to daniela and the rest of you to see what you guys think but um the accents are a good example of this where no one really has a modern american accent in this Mm. daniel lewis obviously being from the uk has a different accent when he speaks, but he is doing his own version of an American accent, but also he was raised by natives. So like his accent's a little weird. Even John Cameron's accent is different. So and he, Jack Winthrop, who's like the stand in for the American revolutionary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So even the details of the accents kind of sell you on this time period, not to mention the natives who are all speaking for the most part, the actors are all speaking their own native languages, which doesn't make sense continuity wise because they wouldn't be speaking different languages right but it makes sense from the delivery aspect he wanted his actors to just be able to speak and to white people and people who don't speak a native language it it just sounds like a native language right oh so so it was done in like the old like 70s italian way where it was they hired a bunch of different native folks and said just speak your lines in your indigenous language pretty much oh that's fascinating the extras that were native in this are like over 900 including by the way the uh national iroquois lacrosse team which was all native i am not shocked and those are the guys that follow magua around when they get to the waterfall like most of those guys are the lacrosse players for the iroquois like team (laughs) (laughs) but i wanted to ask you guys what you thought about the production starting with daniele just like what you see on screen and on set and all that kind of stuff I think there are several things that are interesting. The fact that he did choose to have Russell Means as uh, Daniel Day-Lewis' adopted father is interesting because Russell Means was a huge political figure. He was one of the top leaders of the American Indian movement, which was a sort of the native equivalent of the Black Panther Party, if you're going to make comparisons. So, you know, you're talking serious militant stuff. Incidentally, even the second main leader of the American Indian movie has a really small role in the mo- in the film. Mm. You have Dennis Banks, who played the role. You see him just in a couple of occasions. You see him in the fort when they come in and he comments about, oh, yeah, there's so few of us and so many of them. They're just as a one line that he has. But, you know, he's another guy who was, it was always Russell Minks and Dennis Banks who were sort of the figureheads of the American Indian movement. So compared to the traditional Hollywood thing of having uh, natives as uh, either you don't have natives and you had in the old days, uh, you paint some guys red. 
or you do have natives, but they are you know, very much at the mercy of a production that doesn't really care for their voice. Here, there was definitely more effort to, to take a native viewpoint or at least some feedback on, uh, on the whole thing. How much do you think, not to call it stunt casting, but how much they wanted Russell Means yeah. uh, and, and those folks in the movie, how much do you think that was to a certain extent add kind of their endorsement? Right. This is a this is a book that comes from a kind of problematic tradition of like yeah. kind of you know, the invention of the invention of the the noble savage as an yeah. American archetype, and you know we're going to take this story about Indians, but don't worry, the main character is really white, you know, like which again has roots in history. But how much do you think that that added to the film's acceptance? In that it's trying to take this classic story and tell it in a way that is more just and palatable to a modern audience. Yeah, I think it's really 50-50. Like on one end, it's a bit of a marketing tool making that choice. But on the other end, there's some sincerity behind it because otherwise people like Russell Bean and Dennis Banks are not just going to cash the check and they're going to have a lot to say if they don't if you don't do a movie that's respectful on the native side. So. In some way, Michael Mann had the trouble that he didn't need to take in the production of this movie for the sake of having a more authentic native voice, because these guys would have given him an earful if he made choices that they didn't like. So that's an interesting one. And I guess one thing that I should mention in production, even though it's a completely different topic, but you guys brought it up earlier, the soundtrack. Really, this is one of those fields that with a different soundtrack, I think the result would be dramatically different. This is one of those where the soundtrack is half of the field. It's just as good as it gets. I can think of maybe three or four scores of music history that I like as much as this one. This is a pretty much in the top three. You want to know something really interesting? Mm-hmm. Do tell. That to me is fascinating. So I, I went to Disney World yep. uh, in March, mm-hmm. and we stayed at the Wilderness Lodge in, in Disney World. This soundtrack is like the thing that they play in their lobby, which... Really? Yeah, it's got a very Native American style. They sourced all the artwork from Native American people and all of that. Huh. And I hadn't seen the movie at this point because we went in March, and my we're watching it, and my husband goes, they play this in Wilderness Lodge. Like all the time, this is what they play. <laughs> yeah. Another funny thing about the score. Uh, so when I was in college, I was really into making like mix CDs. Mm-hmm. As we all were. Of, of course. But I made like a 20 song CD that was called Music to Slay Your Sworn Enemy in Single Combat 2. <laughs> <laughs> and the promontory theme was like number three. Yeah, I, I need yep. to hear this. CD I know. Again. Do you have this? We need copies. <laughs> I do. I do have it. <laughs> we need. We need a Spotify playlist stat. I hope that there was the other soundtrack that in my mind. Yeah, I mean there are others that right now are slipping my mind, but the two that come to mind are Last of the Mohicans and the original Conan the Barbarian. Of the course, take it <laughs> That Basil Oliduri score is just iconic you know that makes the movie right there i could listen to that soundtrack every day for the rest of my life and never get tired you know it's that good and last of the Mohicans has that same effect oh yeah and on a serious note i've seen this on a list that included the lords of arabia soundtrack which i mean speaks for itself right there. right yeah right, right. yeah definitely 
on its own merits, like I'll pop it in. I've, I've listened to this driving through the mountains of North Carolina before like that. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Just the, the music stands on its own perfectly well. Yeah. Do you think it always supports the film in every instance that it's used? Cause I feel like there's sometimes that I'm like, yes. And then sometimes I'm like, meh, I don't know how I like it over that particular piece of film, but Man, no, for me, it worked. For me, I liked it. I didn't notice it. There were no moments that jumped at me like, oh, that doesn't fit. You know, even the one where it would be probably the closest to something that doesn't fit, which is the scene after the waterfall where they give chase. With Clannad. Right, exactly. It's Clannad. That's one of the other big differences. So in the original theatrical, you had Clannad singing, I will find you. Yeah. In the director's cut, they took Clannad out. I want to cry. And to just put in some like crap music. Yeah, that's that's a crime because that's such <laughs> a good scene. And then with the definitive director's cut on Blu-ray, they put Clannad back. Okay. They put oh, Clannad okay. back, but this time they're singing in Gaelic, whereas originally they were singing in English. That's what that was. Okay. It okay. is bonkers to me, like the choices that he made with this particular piece of film right. is just, I don't know why you're like, oh, but I didn't like it in English. We'll have them do it different. The first few lines are in Gaelic. Then they switch to English. And apparently somewhere on the soundtrack or somewhere else, there's a, I forget which Native American language, but there's a native version of the song as well. Oh. It's all fascinating. But yeah, it, I mean, this all feels like, why Why are you touching it? Just leave it alone. Just yeah, stop yeah, touching yeah, it. Yeah, it's like yeah, Michael yeah. Mann and my children. Just like, don't touch that. Jesus, you'll break it. Yeah. There isn't a point where to me, the soundtrack is like, why this music or anything like that? But had they taken it out in some parts and left more silence, like had they not been as heavy handed with the soundtrack, I will be okay with that. That's the one thing where I say, wow, like they are playing a shit ton of soundtrack in this. Mm -hmm. Again, this soundtrack is in my veins and I absolutely love it. I will agree they were heavy handed with it, but at least it's a really good soundtrack. Yes. So the production on this, so there's kind of two halves of it. There's both the visuals and then the sound. And we've talked about the soundtrack and like also the sound of the film, which is what won them the Oscar, which we've talked about it before. Winning an Oscar for sound means you have to be really good. And I think at this point there was just best sound. It wasn't sound mixing and sound production. like it, As it is now again, just best sound. Mm-hmm. Is it? Is that this year? They changed it, right? No, they changed it last year. Ugh. It went from sound editing and sound mixing to best sound. Having interviewed a sound mixer, that's a travesty. But anyway, <laughs> it was a big deal to win this kind of thing in a weird way because, you know, it's not the same thing as winning best actor, but it says so much about your movie. And the skill and detail that went into it when you win this kind of what they call below the line award. And it also won several other below the line awards at other festivals and stuff because there was so much dedication. You know, Michael Mann had an idea of what he wanted and he put everything into making that. And I think, you know, like we've talked about from the props and the set, because they literally rebuilt Fort William Henry from nothing in a completely different location (laughs) from the historical records and then destroyed it with, you know, uh, uh, cannons. 
Thank you. Well, that was real cannons <laughs> with uh, squibs and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, how does this not get like a nomination for what we now call best production design is beyond me. Mm-hmm. Just not flashy enough. There were a lot. The 90s were a time of flashy. The 90s were big for that. Yeah. Yeah. This was the year of Howard's End, I think. Yes. Yes. But the cinematography in this both feels very 90s. So incredibly 90s in the in the same way that Dances with Wolves or what is that Brad Pitt movie? Legends of the Fall. Legends of the Fall. Yeah. It has that like windswept feel and rich color palette and the same kind of shot composition. I thought you meant the sex with their clothes on cinematography. I mean, that too. That totally is a thing that I was like. (laughs) That was obligatory in the early 90s. That was one of my notes was bad sex scene. (laughs) I thought her breathing made it. I thought that sold it for me anyway. I'll listen to Madeline Stowe breathe all day. We'll get into it with the acting, but the smoldering, I have to say. But the cinematography in this is just beautifully done. And it needs to be because the pacing on this is very slow. And so it needs to be reflective and contemplative cinematography. Because there are points where we are pointed out at the forest and initially nothing is moving. And then you see men, you know, scampering about. And that's purposeful. And there's also, as I told my husband when I was watching, I was like, there are almost more walking scenes in this than in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like, there are just people traveling from place to place. And if you don't have good cinematography to make that interesting, like, you're going to lose people. And at no point does the cinematographer fall down on this. Like, they worked really hard. Oh, thank God. I, I wasn't sure where you were going. I was like, is Katie trying to say she got lost in the cinema? Okay, thank no. God. No, like, the shot composition is so perfect. I think one of my favorite moments is when Madeline Stowe and Daniel Day-Lewis are sitting in front of that log. And it, it's when the, the tribe comes up and they back off because there's the burial ground area. Mm-hmm. And how it's not a Dutch angle. But it's an interesting angle. It like kind of rides in between showing it from her Mm -hmm. looking at when it does the shot to shot reverse where it's her looking at him and him looking at her like it does such a great job with that stuff that it's so compelling in those moments. So what did everyone else think of the cinematography? I think like the other thing on the cinematography that I loved and, and more than just cinematography in a technical sense, even like in terms of storytelling, it, like one of the characters in the movie is the natural world. Like the wilderness emerges in a really powerful way, in a way that not many movies with so many important characters can bring the wilderness to the forefront. And some of it, I mean, some of it is surreal. Like you have these guys, you know, the the three Mohicans where you have no sense of them being part of a society. I mean, there is this last off, but still it's like, what does that mean? Do they have, is there no fixed home ever? It's just these three men traveling together, no interaction with women, like what's going on there? So there's a questions that if you stop to think about it, you go like, wait, wait, what is that word? What does it really look like? But if you kind of have suspended belief for a second and you look at what they show you, it's beautiful. There is this sense of like uh, really living as the wilderness, not something out there, but part of what your daily life is and their interaction with it is uh, 
both visually stunning and also in terms of storytelling, what he delivers about the characters is very interesting. So that's one of the aspects that I really loved. That first scene really gives you that, right? The deer hunting scene? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I love that scene because you don't know through the whole thing exactly what they're doing the first time you watch it. Yep, mm-hmm. until that last moment. It's so yeah. well shot. Until that that deer or the elk or what have you uh, bursts through the brush. Like, you really don't know what's going on. And I still remember that feeling from the first time I watched it. It's very reminiscent of man's uh, thriller movies. Because it's it's very fast paced, the cuts mm-hmm. are quick and sudden, and and it's just so well done that it drives this tension that you don't actually need the tension for that scene necessarily, but it gives you a sense of how they're feeling in the moment. Totally. Do you have anything on the acting? I gotta hear about the acting. I have to know your thoughts on this because, like, it's such a huge part of this, man. <laughs> And parentheses, who do you want to have sex with the most in this movie? You could uh, feel free to throw that in there if you want to. <laughs> Probably not Magua, I think. Uh, <laughs> fuck that. Magua's top on my list. West Studi is not that daddy. <laughs> my, my favorite part about Magua, uh, hands down, across the board, is always when Montcalm asks him, Why do you hate the gray hair, Magua? And he doesn't answer the question. No. <laughs> All he says is, when the gray hair is dead, Magua will eat his heart. Before he dies, Magua will put his children under the knife so the gray hair will know his seed is wiped out forever. And it's like, that's not a fucking answer, Magua. Is, like, no, nope. It takes us another hour before we find the answer. But that also is interesting how they do give you an answer. And it's actually a pretty good answer, you know, where it's not like a stereotypical mustache twirling guy. It's uh, the villain of the story. You can perfectly relate to him. Like, he has good reasons for totally. doing what he does. You know? Right. So it's Justifiable like, reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, and they all, personally, I thought they all did a phenomenal job, you know, from uh, Magua himself portraying, you know, the, the character, the way uh, West Addy played that role. The way Daniel Day-Lewis did a fantastic job. Uh, even somebody, like, I forgot the guy's last name, Eric something. The guy who plays the uh, brother. Of, uh, yeah, the guy who played the brother of Daniel Day-Lewis. Uncas, yeah. He's also great. He's oh. also, you know, that doesn't have that many lines, but he really sells it in a beautiful way. It feels like all the great supporting actors prop up and make the really great main performances Mm -hmm. even better yep yep. and all the silent acting is great Mm -hmm. people who are not delivering lines know how to stand there know how to stare at someone know how to receive information Uh, like the faces they're doing such great face acting and a nice little cameo from future stars like jared harris and uh pete postlethwaite Mm -hmm. oh i love him yeah Wes Studi is phenomenal in this, and he's terrifying on his own, but I have to tell you guys a story that I've been waiting to tell until this episode came up, because Wes Studi post-2003 is particularly terrifying to me as a person, and that's because (laughs) when I went to Marine Corps boot camp, which picture Full Metal Jacket, and it's not that different, the boot camp part is relatively similar culturally, I had four drill instructors. There's a senior, there's a junior, and then there's two third and fourth tier drill instructors, the fourth one being the newest guy. Two of my drill instructors were Mexican. One grew up in LA. I'm not sure where the other one was from, but he was very native looking. He looked 
exactly like Magua, and he was absolutely terrifying. He had the ability to scream in your face two inches away. Some drill instructors can do this. He was definitely one of them who could just, with a thought, turn on the faucet and yell while spittling in your face. And oh, so you're at attention gross. and you are getting all this man's spittle. Like you can smell it. It's disgusting. And you have to just sit there and take it. So this guy was already terrifying. And at this point, I'm a squad leader. I have some small responsibilities of like a quarter of the platoon where like when we go out and do stuff, I'm in charge of doing dumb things. One of them being handing out suntan lotion to everyone, right? Like that was my job. I like take the suntan lotion. I go down the line, <laughs> squirt a little squirt in everyone's hand, right? But that's that's like a big deal, right? You get that step up to being the responsible person for handling shit. Yeah, they're they're teaching you leadership and responsibility like one little step at a time. So when you become a squad leader, you get these little tasks and you're in charge of like small things, right? And if you don't know my background, like I'm half Irish, Scottish and half Southern Italian genetically. So I'm like really white in the winter, really tan in the summer if I stay out in the sun, you know. So I'm going down the line and I'm squirting a little bit of suntan lotion in everyone's outstretched hand. And I get to one of my recruits who's, I found out later, emigrated from Mexico. He was from Texas, but he had grown up in Mexico, very dark skin. And when I squirted it in his hand, he said, could I have more? And in a completely natural way, the same way I would have said to any other Sicilian or any other person who tans really well, I mean, you're dark. What do you need more for? You know, like you're, you're, you'll be fine, basically. And I did not mean it in any way in like a racial kind of way. I literally was just like, okay, like I didn't even have a problem giving him more. I just like didn't get the question. He gave me a look. You don't have time to do shit in boot camp, right? Like I just had move on and like whatever. I didn't even think twice about it. So we go through the rest of the evolution of our day and whatever. And that night, we're like getting ready, taking showers. We have like our hour of free time where you get to like read the paper, take a shower, whatever. And I get called to the senior drill instructor's office. So I I hear recruit for Lido and all the recruits freeze and stop what they're doing. And they all yell back like recruit for Lido, I sir. And I'm like in flip flops in a towel. And I'm like, oh, shit, because I was like clipping my toenails or something. So I stand up and I'm like, like flip flop sound. I skate all the way to the duty hut which again looks just like full metal jacket and i bang on the door naked in my towel in flip-flops recruit for leader reporting is ordered he goes get in here for Lido. this is my senior drill instructor so i walk in there and i stand at attention he goes so for Lido, i heard you don't like mexicans and i was like the what <laughs> i had no idea what in the fuck like we had done no context for this conversation whatsoever yeah we'd done 180 things since the suntan lotion incident six hours earlier so like <laughs> no. i have no idea where this is even coming from i don't even know if i'm supposed to say yes or no so i go no no sir like I, you know i'm just like at a complete loss and he goes yeah i heard this and he reiterates what he heard from this recruit and i'm just like you don't have time to argue, right? Like you're at attention. So next thing you know, he's handing me a rubber rifle and making me do like star jumps in my towel. I'm doing exercises. I'm doing all this shit. And again, this Mexican drill instructor who grew up in LA is just berating me. Oh, so we want to be in the KKK, huh? For I'm like, no, sir. I'm like doing exercises. This is the evening time. So only one drill instructor is on duty at a time. Then he says the magic words. Now this Magua lookalike, his name was Yurkides. And he goes, wait till tomorrow when Staff Sergeant Yurkides comes back. And I'm like shitting myself where I'm going, oh, God. So I go to bed, probably unable to sleep that night other than we're 
dead tired. So wake up in the morning, do our breakfast, do our things, whatever. And at some point, the other drill instructors show up. And so your Kitas comes to the quarter deck and I'm, I think they call me up again. I'm at attention. Now I'm in uniform. Same thing, right? Like, so for Lito, you don't like Mexicans. Huh? And I'm like, uh, no, sir. Yes, sir. I don't even know what to say. And next thing I know, they put a white pillowcase over my head with eye holes cut out of it. And they're yelling at me about, so they're like, so you like being in the KKK, huh? For later, I'm doing jumping jacks in uniform on the quarter deck with this freaking pillowcase over my head. Jesus. <laughs> Nobody brought any extra bags. Did that scene in Django, like, give you the shakes? Yeah. So <laughs> this continues for the rest of the day, Thank basically, God. where I'm just getting laid into. And then... They, they lay off because then they have someone else to pick on the next day for something else. And at some point, I get like two seconds of time to go talk to this guy who clearly was upset with me. You know, so I go up to him and I go, hey, man, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean anything racist by what I said whatsoever. It was literally like just a gut reaction. Like I would have said the same thing to myself. And we had a quick conversation and, you know, he was like, yeah, I emigrated from Mexico. I dealt with a lot of this shit in Texas when I was going to school. So, like, it's a side and I totally understand. I apologize. And we became fast friends after that. But and that, folks, is why Dan is a great dude, because instead of getting all uh, upset, how dare you? He was like, sorry, I didn't mean it like that. Oh, shit. That was not how I meant it, but owned it. I would have been sent home the next day. From just crying a lot. <laughs> yeah, I too would have cried. I would not have made it to see Staff Sergeant Magua return. Just tears. I would have just been, I'll just pack up my shit now and leave. It was rough. But just so you know, after that, watching this movie brings back flashbacks of that scene and that drill instructor. So that's why you were crying so much during the movie. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but no, I loved West Studi in this. Oh. This was my second West Studi movie. What was your first? Dances with Wolves. Okay. Mm. You guys have seen it, correct? Mm -hmm. You haven't seen Dances with Wolves, Katie? Oh, shit. It fell into that time. I was okay. too young. We can do I this was again. too young. It's got to be great. My mams was like, you can't watch. Well, no, Dances with Wolves you is... You can't see his bare ass. Oh, okay, fine. Butts. Although I did get to watch Waterworld. <laughs> the much lesser dances with wolves kevin costner in the 90s made movies just so he could show his ass exactly exactly my mom was like no ass for you and it was a fine ass he was sexiest man alive for like half of the 90s he had a finely sculpted buttocks kevin costner oddly enough did get to watch robin hood prince of thieves well it's underwater you see, and he's swimming like <laughs> exactly. underwater and exactly. then he goes like behind a waterfall. I was also really big into Robin Hood as a kid. So my mom was like, it's fine. It's Robin Hood. It can't be that bad. And Mary Elizabeth Antonio totally oh my God. thirsting after that ass. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman is so hot in that. But anyway, Wes Studi plays a very similar character in Dances with Wolves. Only he doesn't speak any English and it's a smaller role, but he's... Uh, he, I'm trying to remember the tribe, but it was a, a rival tribe to the Lakota Sioux that are featured in Dances with Wolves, but he's a psychopath. <laughs> he is, uh, he's a, a just a, a really sadistic character in that. And so seeing him in this, I was like, oh my God, it's that guy. Right. So I knew immediately he was the bad guy. There's no way he couldn't be, because the one frame of reference that I had from him 
And he has such good face, like just such a, a hard carved face. And his presence. I think it's more even than his face because his face could go either way. It's his menacing presence throughout the entirety of the film that really hits for me. But it's really interesting to to see this in comparison to his role in Dances with Wolves because it feels in some ways like the same role, but just like you're really getting almost the story from his perspective. Like it feels like it's really fleshing out these two characters. But no, I I love West Studi and I was very pleased that he finally got his honorary Oscar a couple of years ago. And it's that often missed but crucial element to a good bad guy, especially in this time period. And it's being able to humanize them and being able to let the audience empathize with them. When he explains himself to the Sahim, you understand what he's saying. And his reaction to everything that's happening is to adopt the ways of the white man or of the Europeans who have come over. And when Hawkeye questions him about this in that scene at the end in the village. Would Magua use the ways of Le Francais and the Yengeese? And Magua looks at him. Would you? Yes. Would the Huron make his Algonquin brothers foolish with brandy and steal his lands to sell them for gold to the white man? Would Huron have greed for more land than a man can use? And it's not because I'm the bad guy, but it's because that's his reaction to everything that's happening. Right? He's seen how everything has been depredated and pillaged and he's seen villages get burned and he's seen his own family be killed. And he said, yeah, I'm going to do what I need to do to make sure that I survive, my people survive, etc. Yeah. And he's the only one with a plan. He's the only one with an answer to, you know, the even the, yeah, the question is, what is the, what are they hearing to do? He's the only one who's like, I've got an idea. Nobody's going to like it, but I've got it. Yeah. Right. Let's be more like the French, essentially. And you can see that that has already happened in many ways, because, again, this is several hundred years of Europeans being in North America. Right. What do you see all the natives holding rifles? Right. We've already moved on to the point right. where all the natives are already using european technology they've already adapted their fighting right so there's a lot of that going on in the background as well i mean even michael mann says it in his commentary he's like magua's real politic view is totally valid and it's true like you can't really argue with that you know he clearly is the villain of this particular story because our protagonists or our good guys are the people who are against him but you know that's what makes a good bad guy is someone you can relate to Yes. Well, he wants to set Madeline Stowe on fire, and I'm not cool with that. No, no. But no, he had me at the, uh, <laughs> there's the line of dialogue that he has with Hayward when they're walking through the forest. He's like, hey, we have to stop. Women are tired. And he's like, do you understand what I said? And he goes, and he goes under this whole thing in his native tongue about how the English are a dog to their <sighs> women. Mark, we're running around, so we're running around. Excuse me, what did you say? Magua said, I understand the English very well. And I was just like, oh, burn. Yeah, he basically calls him a bitch. And then he says, I understand English very well, which is such a great line. Oh, it's so good. And that's what I was like. Like, when you talk about humanizing somebody, 
a lot of times we just sort of default to being sympathetic with them and their plight or their cause and really showing like, Oh, the other side of them. But it's also like, you can be a nasty little bitch sometimes. And that's still being a perfectly rounded human. Right. He's sassy. I agree. It's so, um, real, you know, mm-hmm. we, we talk a lot about um, realism on this show and, the realism in West Duty's performance as Magua is so on point. Like, it's hard for me to hate him because he is so sympathetic in a lot of ways. You know, like, I immediately assumed when he says, you know, I, I hate the gray hair. I'm going to eat his heart. I was like, oh, so he killed your family and everything, right? Because that's that's the justification for this. And then when that is proven out, that that's his justification for why he wants to kill these uh, two women and their dad. It's like, it's not okay, but it's kind of understandable with the brutality of what warfare was at that time and what life was like at that time. So I think Studi really manages to capture that feeling and be both hateable and sympathetic at the same time. Magua also starts his villainous killing spree throughout this movie by tomahawking the worst extra in the entire movie, <laughs> which is my favorite thing. The smiling 19 year old. Yeah. This smi- oh. like he's walking up and he's like, just walking down the line, walking down the line. And then like, he just picks the first dude that smiles at him because like the camera shot is heading right towards this guy's face. And this guy is staring right at the camera and almost like mugging for the camera. It's just this big wide grin and he's looking right into the lens and then Magua just kills him. And I was like, and death. Yeah, that guy, he didn't even (laughs) see it coming. (laughs) Stephen Waddington plays the plays Hayward, Duncan Hayward. Stephen Waddington is great. Like he's so good at being slightly worm, not full worm. But slightly worm, right? This is, I think, our second Stephen Waddington movie. Is it? What else was he in? He was in uh, The Imitation Game. He was one of the cops. He was like, oh, he's a puff. Oh, <gasps> shit. Did he have a mustache? Right, right. I, right. He might have had, it was slight. It's red, and okay. he's older now, but he's like, he's thicker now. Like, I wouldn't call him fat, but like, he's sure. he's bulkier. So I saw him in this, but I also saw him in the... Uh, the BBC miniseries they did with A&E of Ivanhoe in the 90s, where he played Sir Wilfred of Ivanhoe. Oh, okay. And it's, so think like a more ambitious Pride and Prejudice, but with less of a budget. So it's like not as good as Pride and Prejudice from with, with Colin Firth and uh, Jennifer Ely, but it's really a pretty good adaptation of that novel, I think. And it has Kieran Hines as Sir Brian de Bois-Gilbert. And he's fabulous. Interesting. To me, one of the most interesting things about Waddington's character, Major Hayward, is how hateable isn't the right word. Punchable? Like, you don't hate him. <laughs> oh, I do. Throughout the whole movie, I do until the end. I mean, I don't know. I, I never hate him. I'm just kind of like, oh, you poor guy. Like, you don't really understand how the real world works. I've got no respect for him. Right. Well, and neither does Cora, clearly, after a few scenes together. And I get it. Right. And you understand why. And he's faced with one of the strongest actors and characters in the film in Madeline Stowe as Cora. And you're kind of like, oh, you are way out of your league, bro. This girl 
even for the 1700s, is not just going to accept what her father thinks is best for her or whatever. Clearly, like, this girl's following her passion and her heart, and it is does not lead to you. You've complimented me with your persistence and patience, but the decision I have come to is that I'd rather make the gravest of mistakes and to surrender my own judgment. That quote is perfection. Yeah, it explains her character in just one line, right? It gives you all her motivation. Right. It's a... Like, if I'm going to be wrong, I'm going to be wrong. Right. It's a rejection of this idea that someone else should make these decisions for her because she's not a full person. Like, it is an embrace of, like, well, if it's my... If I'm going to make a mistake, it's my mistake to make. And I am fine with that. And I'd rather be wrong than have somebody else be wrong for me. Or be right for me. Honestly... It was so much like, I'd rather be wrong than marry you. If marrying you is what it takes for happiness, then fuck happiness. It's right. <laughs> kind of the sense you get from her that she's like, no, this isn't going to work, my dude. Yeah, totally. Again, something that as modern people, we can relate to a lot. But for right. a woman of her time, she was stepping way outside her lane and being really independent compared to right. the average woman, especially of her class, etc. But what I wanted to say about Hayward is I can't make a comparison. Like, I can't think of another character that starts off like such a pud and someone who you just have contempt and no respect for. And the way they have him end his arc, where in a quick translation moment, trade him. Me for her! Where Hawkeye is saying, take me for her. And Hayward translates that as take me, pointing at himself, and then sacrifices himself to be burned at the stake to let Korra go free mm -hmm. was such a layered and incredible way to end that character and give him some real redemption. Because other than that, I was like, I don't know how this character is going to redeem himself. Other than like, okay, yeah, sure. You jump in front of someone and get hatcheted to death, but it would have been cheaper. It wouldn't have held as much meaning. No, it's not getting burnt alive. Right. This has a lot of meaning. Right. And, and and knowing that it's happening and choosing to do it. And, you know, it added a layer to it for me that I didn't really think of until this viewing of the film where I said, I don't know if this is what the filmmaker intended here, but there is a layer of this that could actually be that Hayward loves Cora so much that he would rather die and let her be happy, clearly, with Hawkeye than live without her. And I, I'm not sure if that was intended, but I feel like it's a layer I think that's the intent. I think so, too. But it's also, I think it's even a little bit more complex than that, or a little bit more oh my, self-degrading, maybe, even that, like, uh, pragmatic. So let's say that he does the translation as given, mm -hmm. and they take Hawkeye and burn Hawkeye, and give him Madeline Stowe, give him Korra. Right, right. What's he going to do then? Exactly. He can't find their way back, first of all. Second of all, is going to hate him and probably not go with him. And they're both going to die miserable. And like, he can't save her. Not, not only can he not make her happy, he can't save her in this situation. Right. And even if he could, she wouldn't want him to. Yeah. So the only thing left for him to do is what he did. Is to sacrifice himself. Yeah, it's yeah. tragic and commendable. And again, makes you like the character by the end. And yeah. 
And you can tell that so does Hawkeye. Right. It's a respect. Well, and you see the sorrow in his face when he is aiming down the sights on his, by the way, 1820s Pennsylvania rifle, not a 1750s Kentucky rifle, as it's sort of implied, just for a little bit of firearm pedantry. It's a beautiful rifle. I definitely messaged Jeff about this movie to ask if any of this uh, sharpshooting shit was even remotely possible. And he said, kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Let me finish this thought and then we can we can talk. We should talk a little bit about that. And I have a couple of moments on production after that. I want to write up on Chingachgook's war club. Oh, man. His yeah. His gun club is fucking amazing. Yeah. But you can see the sorrow in Nathaniel's face as he's aiming down his sights to shoot him. And then he clearly kills him to put him out of his misery. But like he's almost crying. You know, you can really see that. And yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is that moment. Can barely aim through the tears. Yeah, it's that face acting, right? Where he's not saying anything, but he's giving you so much. Right. I'm going to rep for a second another podcast uh, that we've mentioned before, but Fighting on Film, uh, who are a couple of guys out of the UK. Uh, Robbie's one who I talk to on a regular basis. Did a great episode on Last of the Mohicans. You should look that up. This particular episode, they had a museum firearms expert who breaks down all the rifles in the film. And... To their credit, not in a pedantic, annoying way where you're like, okay, but this film's so good, you're just wrecking it going into these annoying details and rivet counting on the rifles. They don't do that. They commend the film for all the detail and the beauty of the craftsmanship, but still explain to you the difference between a musket and a rifle and a rifle gun and the different versions, etc. So, yeah, like Nathaniel's rifle is a good example. Again, you can listen to their show to get more detail, but it's about... 60 years in the future out of date but it was handmade by a local craftsman and is like this beautiful rifle whether the sharp shooting that is shown in the film is accurate it kind of depends on the distances and the film doesn't really show you that man says that him and daniel day lewis actually went out with these rifles on the range and shot at standing targets, clearly, not someone running through the forest. Right, a moving target, which is totally different. But he he said that these, I'm assuming, replica rifles from around the 1820s were accurate up to about 200 yards. Like, they could mm-hmm. actually hit the center of a target at 200 yards, which, again, is pretty impressive. That's about what Jeff said. Yeah. Is, is that... Depending on the model of the rifle, they could be almost this accurate. Right. And there are little, again, fibs where they show you how he uses some of Cora's silk mm-hmm. to actually use as a patch in the rifle. Tight weave. Silk. Another 40 yards. And by itself, that's probably not true. But it is true that the more tightly weaved the patch is the more you are going to trap the gases and close that gap and give you a little more oomph. So I think in combination with a little extra gunpowder and other things, maybe you could get an extra 40 yards. Again, that's being pedantic, but it is clear that they did about as much research and as much work as possible. And if you go into the making of this, the amount of work that Daniel Day-Lewis did to kind of become this superhero of the 18th century in North America. He can actually, or at the time could load a musket on the run. Yep. By the time he was done doing this movie. Yeah. And there were basically three major military consultants and trainers on this film. 
one of whom we know very well, Captain Dale Dye, worked on this film. He did a lot of the formation military training. He took, I don't know if it was like 90 extras or how many, and trained them both in British fighting tactics and French fighting tactics so that they could be used in different scenes and move in formation correctly, etc. He taught them how to march. He taught them how to be soldiers, essentially. And then Colonel David Webster is the person who did, especially with Daniel Day-Lewis, though I'm assuming he also trained other people. And, you know, if you look at the making of this, the director's basically like, yeah, he's the son of a poet. He's never really handled a firearm ever. And so they started him off with M16s and shotguns and modern firearms to learn all the safety, all the mannerisms, you know, how to aim your head where the weapon is going. And then they worked him backwards into the period pieces. And there was also, I could not find this guy's name to save my life, but Daniel Day-Lewis refers to him as like a Daniel Boone type outdoorsman character who dressed in 18th century garb and could just survive in the wilderness. He's the guy who Daniel actually saw could run at a full sprint and reload one of these rifles and turn around and fire them. So that guy taught him how to start a fire and do all that wilderness training. So yeah, like anybody can do the, well, let's do military boot camp for three months like anybody can be put through that but i think it's a combination of day lewis's commitment and method acting and man providing him with the professionals to really put him through it that sells the product in the end he put on the muscle the right way it's amazing what they really pull off on screen and it looks real because it kind of is real right they really went all out with this this is gonna sound for a minute like i'm talking shit but i'm not because daniel day lewis is an amazing actor Obviously, he's one of the greatest of all time ever captured in film. Yeah, he's a goat. But I've seen personally, I've worked with actors who are completely unselfish. And what I mean by that is that they don't want to be good. They want everybody in that scene to be good. And I don't know if Daniel Day-Lewis necessarily works to make everybody in the scene better. Interesting. I think because he's too much in his own head to really contemplate something like that. Like that's an external acting thing. That is an external motivation rather than an internal one, which is by way of saying, because Daniel Day-Lewis can very easily leave other people behind in a movie and he doesn't leave other people behind in this movie. And I have to think it's because the rest of the cast is that strong. It takes somebody like Madeline Stowe mm-hmm. to play this part opposite Daniel Day-Lewis because she's right. that fucking intense and that good. Right. I agree. That, and I think something that Daniel Day-Lewis himself said, and it's not so much that he can't or doesn't want to carry any of the other actors. It's more like he already has his own job to focus on, which clearly takes all of his being to do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. But he very much believed in that chain of command where Michael Mann is the general and he is one of the soldiers and he has a specific job, but it was Michael Mann's job to really implement instructions and talk to everyone about exactly where he wanted them. And you see that and Madeline Stowe talks about this, but also she's like, he was demanding and would do 20 takes, but everyone loved him because you could tell that what he was doing was getting not in a Kubrickian way, right? Kubrick, it's like 
everyone was happy with the final performance, but they fucking hate him while they're shooting the film because he's such a dick. Right. Kubrick would make you do 90 takes just to establish dominance and then use the first take that he got anyway. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's not Michael Mann at all, right? No, Michael Mann no. was just committed to his vision. Mann's looking for the best performance he can get in the moment. I wanted to ask you guys, do you know why this was filmed in North Carolina for the Hudson River Valley and for an area that in reality was New York? Because they couldn't get any uh, any unpeopled land in New York, right? Yeah, yeah. The Smoky Mountains were the best option that felt the most similar, but were not nearly as populated. Yeah, that's a big part of the reason, although it did require, I find this hilarious, but so the Blue Ridge Mountains, where they were filming in North Carolina, yes, was less populated in the 90s than the New York area. And so they were able to get these long, wide landscape shots where they weren't going to get interference, although he still had to shut down 26 miles of road to make sure that there weren't any cars and he managed to reroute two, at least two different flight paths of aircraft. We're talking like FAA, like Holy airways crap. where flights so that there wouldn't be contrails in the shots. And I was like, I don't know to this day who you even talk to in the FAA to ask them to reroute flight paths of aircraft. Like that is some national security level stuff that I'm like, I have no idea how you do that. Right. That is wild. That's some pre 9-11 shit. Exactly. Yeah, probably, probably <laughs> true. So that's one big reason. The other big reason is while on the West Coast, those of us like me who are over here might not think about this on the East Coast. Apparently, there are only two stretches left of old growth forests that have never been cut down. Mm -hmm. And one of them is in this area. And you see it in the very first ambush scene when they're walking through the woods. That was old growth forest. And they cut it down to build Fort William Henry. I don't think they cut that <laughs> no. down in particular. <laughs> no, but what he wanted was a forest that essentially looks the same in 1990 when they filmed as it would have in the 1700s. And there were only a couple of options and they were both in that area. And so that's another big reason why they ended up shooting in North Carolina. Yep. It is true that they acquired a 40 acre piece of land and then clear cut it to build the fort out of the materials out of the actual lumber and they did the same thing with the cabin they built that cabin out of local lumber they planted those crops like again sometimes you're just kind of like oh it looks so real well it's because it is real now what they clear cut was sixth or seventh stage growth so it wasn't it was something that got clear cut every 30 years anyway so it's not it wasn't an environmental disaster or anything but yeah i mean this is a time before cgi where 90 percent of this would just be done with cgi now but back then, they really did this for real. And it's so much better that way. It's so much better. Mm -hmm. That fort cost, even in 1990 money, just under a million dollars, I think, to build, which is sounds like kind of a bargain now. I guess in 1990, that's pretty expensive, but still. So not that we have time to to go through and do like a full synopsis. And I feel like a lot of people have seen this one anyway, but we haven't really talked a whole lot about plot. Mm-hmm. Is there a scene from the movie that is your favorite? Or Katie, was there one that really stuck out to you? There's some iconic stuff in here. Like in the 90s, everybody parodied the I will find you scene. It was like the proto, they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Like it was like that a couple of years earlier. I think the scene that speaks the most to me is Alice's grieving over Uncas. And Alice played by Jodie May. 
Uncas played by Eric Schweig, and he doesn't sacrifice himself for her, but he dies trying to rescue her. And Alice has been at this point given to Magua for reasons. And there's an incredibly long, possibly too long, where Magua and Alice have this moment of him like, don't jump off the cliff. And she's like, I'm going to jump off the cliff, actually. Fuck you. And <laughs> she then proceeds to jump off the cliff rather than continue on with whatever her future is. And I think that for me was the most poignant scene because Alice has not been a huge character in this movie. We've seen her developing this relationship over time and almost in the background falling in love with Uncas. It's almost a little underserved. It is, I think. But there's that greater story of, you know, Hawkeye falling in love with Korra and all of that. And there's these little background moments. And I think that man does that as a way to have like, while there is this bigger picture going on, there's also all these other people who are experiencing this. And that's the best way of showing it. And I think... That scene is really impactful for me and definitely was the most emotional. So I got to give a shout out to both those actors for their incredibly subtle performances. I love when West Studies like when West Studios Magua is is like, no, no, look, I'll be I'll, I'll be cool. I'll be cool. No, I don't. I don't have to kill people. I'm sorry. I killed your boyfriend, but he does the little hand thing. Yeah, it's a little. I'm going to wave you back. Come on. Come on now. First, he lowers his blade, lowers his knife slowly. Yeah. He's like, look, I'll be, I'll be chill. Like, I know th- we got off to a rough start. What's your name again? <laughs> <laughs> and again, I, I was like, girl, d- do it. It's not, it's not worth it. Like, this guy's not going to be cool. Just if you're not up for running away, which sounds terrible for who you are and where you're at. Probably better to just be done with this shit. Although, did you know that she was going to end badly? When did you get the 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 thought that she was not well? Because her first line to me was like, oh, sweetie. We leave in the morning? Yes, miss. I shan't sleep tonight. What an adventure. Have you seen the red man? And I'm like, oh, no, no. No, when she, when she talks about going back to England. Mm-hmm. I can't wait after we have this experience. I was like, oh, she's going to die. She's, she's going to die. Yeah, I love I love the juxtaposition of how she dies compared to how she enters the story going, have you seen the Red Man? Like, she's just like, has no yep. idea and just has been reading stories, you know? Right. <laughs> been reading too much James Fenmore Cooper. and Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of what was my big moment in this that I felt was really well done. That spoke to me. Mine has to be the scene immediately after that. When Chingachgook makes it up the mountain and just fucking lays the most heinous ass whooping I have ever seen in film. Like, not just, oh my God, just so good. They didn't even pretend like Magua had a chance. He just rolled not in Not even for a second. He was just like, no, you killed my son. You're, I'm, I'm going to destroy you now. It is so satisfying. It's so satisfying. That weapon is called a gunstock war club. Yes. That was essentially a big long piece of hardwood in the shape of a gun with a knife attached to part of it. <laughs> but other than that, like it's just this giant piece of hardwood and I'm I'm watching him and he is just 
decimating fools with that shit. Just, I'm, I've got no patience or time for this. Just crushing dreams and ending lives and just, oh my God. And like Magua tries to take a swipe at him and he does a somersault right under oh, it and then just yeah. hits him in the back. Like, oh God, it's so good. I love that. The most satisfying scene in the entire movie. Yeah, that they let Russell Means, like that they give him this moment is so powerful and how he almost like sort of like just shakes his head at him he's just like yep you son of a bitch and then has the twirl moment where he's like "Mm, and now i'm gonna twirl all the way around and kill you and i was like maybe didn't need to twirl but okay he needed the twirl he needed the twirl for the drama for the drama dan what do you got i mean you guys picked the best part of the movie so i'm gonna follow up with (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you what, I won't be able to pick as good a scene, but I'll pick a couple of small ones. First of all, I have to say that despite the fact that this film deservedly got an Oscar for the sound design and oftentimes the gore and violence is kind of just off screen and you're, or at least it's really getting sold in the sounds of the thwacks and the thuds and the, the sounds of things clashing. Yeah, there's a significant lack of blood. And it's in the bottom of the corner. Like the guy gets scalped in like the bottom right hand corner in that scene where you see the guy get scalped. Right. Right. It's very minimal blood. Yeah. A lot of it's very minimal. But when they do show you blood, you can tell that all the people in charge of squibs and special effects. I mean, there's a scene where the native jumps up on Monroe's horse and he blocks him with his saber and then pulls out his horse pistol and shoots him in the gut. And it's like, you get to see that up close and you're like, uh, that was a squib apparently, but it looked real. No, he just shot that dude. <laughs> it's for the film. It's fine. Yeah. They just had a surgeon standing by. All right. We got an exit wound, people. We got an exit wound. He's fine. <laughs> and even in the final battle between Chingachgook and Magua, when he hits him in the arm and his elbows sticking out, it looks like a compound fracture. And I'm like... That looks so real. That looks like he broke his freaking arm. Like, it's just, especially for, you think back to the 1990s, it's like, you could have gotten away with less realistic makeup effects. And like, you know, you'd be forgiving now to be like, oh yeah, it's 1990 when they shot this. But it's like, it just looks straight up real. Like, I can't tell that it's makeup. There's a, uh, there's a a funny sort of family anecdote. My uh, nephew was like two years old when, uh, he was eating a jelly donut and just fucking got it all over him. And my brother-in-law took a picture of it and sent it, like texted it to everybody and just said, when the gray hair is dead, Magua will eat his heart. Cause that's, a, <laughs> that's what he looked like. Just like a big jelly donut that was just demolished, held up in his hand. <laughs> that's amazing. For me, the two small scenes, because I think you guys mentioned the best one. In the first ambush scene where Hawkeye is coming up to defend the women first and he sees Magua pointing his rifle at Korra and realizes that's what he's going for. And so with the score just blasting in the best spot ever, he twirls his rifle around and brings it up and then Magua realizes he's aiming at him and turns his rifle to meet him and then as he fires, Nathaniel slowly sinks down to his knees 
And by the time the smoke clears, Magua has disappeared into the weeds. And I was mm-hmm. just like, oh, man, that sequence is choreographed so well because it shows you this movie just does so much showing, not telling. And that choreography is really quintessential to that kind of movement. Luckily, I got a Ph.D. in smoke bombs. <laughs> <laughs> And then the other thing is actually one of the moments where the score is not pounding or is understated. At night, when they first get to Fort William Henry, before they let the score pound back on, and you can't see the fort because it's behind the little island with the trees, mm-hmm. but you can see the flares and the explosions, and you just hear the distant explosions, and you get to see the light works in the black of the shot. And I think there's zero score in that moment. And it's such a great introduction to this whole huge four battle scene that's about to happen with pounding music and love scenes and all this crazy shit. But that moment of respite that you get is just like, oh, oh, okay, we're about to get into it. And it sounds like fireworks. Yeah, it does. Because it's just gunpowder. And now it's time for the breakdown. It's the point in the show when we ask our three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Daniele, you're our special guest. Why don't you go first? I think what happens with these compared to any other period piece set in North America, following the Dances with Wolves lead, is the attempt to portray a more complex story. A story that is not just good guys versus bad guys. You have uh, multiple sides involved, multiple groups involved. You do sympathize with uh, the colonist perspective. They do humanize the native villain. You do understand the quote unquote good guys among the natives. So I think in some ways, this, uh, which I feel is very truthful to the very concept of the frontier as it existed during the French and Indian War, which is that it's not a, a line, the frontier, where you have one group on one side and one group or another, but it's kind of this chaotic zone where there is no state, there is no superior power breaking down everybody's neck. It's something that is constantly negotiated culturally. It's a place of exchange of exchange of cultures, of exchange of genes, of exchange of all sorts of stuff. It's, there's like mixing is the name of the game of that particular word. And I find that the film does an excellent job at uh, conveying it and bringing it to life and making you feel that, uh, that sensation where, and it really is in that sense, kind of a masterclass in nuance is really not having a clear cut viewpoint that they shove down your throat, but really making you look at the same events from multiple different viewpoints without beating you on the head with it. It's not doing a Rashomon, which is like telling you, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to show you from different viewpoints. But naturally, as you watch it, you sort of get a glimpse of what it, the whole scene looks like from this person and that person and that person. And uh, the fact that they do it cross-culturally is extra interesting. I think that answer is one and two. Did you like it as the third question? I think we all know the answer, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that one has been uh, part of every other thing I've said. Yeah, this is one of my uh, probably top 10 movies. I really, really, really enjoyed this movie. Every time, like when I first showed it to my daughter and she was falling asleep, I was like, how dare you? 
Okay, but how old, how old was she? She was like two. What do you want? <laughs> she was probably seven years old. So by the time she watched it when she was 11, she was like, holy shit, this is amazing. I love this, you know? So if I show it to my daughter, she's nine. Yeah. You think she's there? I'm not a good person to ask because I showed, uh, <laughs> I showed my daughter Conan the Barbarian when she was five. Yes. And, um, and we had a blast. <laughs> we both loved it. So I think the only place where I draw the line on age appropriate is not sex or violence, which I honestly don't care. And neither does she. Like that doesn't bother her a tiny bit. The thing that bothers her is uh, seeing good people suffer horrendously. And so when she wanted to watch Game of Thrones and she was like nine or something, I was like, no, but not because no is like a decision up from above. I tell you no, because he's for adults in some ways, because you suffer when you watch good people suffer. And Game of Thrones is the whole damn thing is terrible things happening to good people. Yeah. So it's going to make you sad. Why are we going to do that? And she was like, yeah, good point. And so we ended up watching like somebody, as you may imagine now in the days of YouTube, somebody clipped every single Arya Stark scene there was a season by season. There you go. What would become a one hour season. And so we would watch that. And she loved that. <laughs> you know? That's great. That is solid. Katie, this was your first time seeing it. So why don't you go next? So I think the goal here is that man wants to tell a more representative version of this time period. He is far more invested in giving the native side of these conflicts their due and allowing them to speak for themselves by hiring indigenous actors and allowing those moments to express themselves. And I think Man also had the goal of updating the story to be how he saw it as this fascinating love story that he he took a book that was definitely not as steamy and smoldering as this is into, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe, like melting each other's clothes off, even though we never actually get to see any clothes off in this. What are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. Katie's so mad. She's so mad about that. And I don't blame her. I... <laughs> I want to see him all naked, too. I, I don't even need to see him naked. I just... Oh, we get so close, though. Like, there's times when he, like, gets up and they're arresting him, and he's just got, like, that loincloth on. Right. Oh, my God, DDL. <laughs> More of that, please. All I need to see is Madeline Stowe's shoulders. That's it. That would be enough to show me that intimacy that I think is missing from the sex scene, unfortunately. There's all this passion, and their relationship is fantastic throughout this. Like, the slow burn, will they, won't they, is such a good representation of a romance relationship, especially in a historical book, or rather, in this case, a historical movie, that it's, like, applause-worthy how well the acting pulls it off and the story and all that. Katie, I sorry to interrupt you, but I, it's like right on point. Is it fair to say that this is a romance where we don't see enough of a naked woman? 
because again at times maybe not in that particular scene but like we see plenty of the men almost naked just because they're mostly natives right, right? but it's it's really what's missing is madeline stone needed to show some skin to really sell some of this romance i think you're right how often does that happen though usually that's but what's not happening. in like like i don't need to see her tits or her ass right, or right. anything like that it, it is just more because in this era meaning the era the film is set in the vulnerability of showing one's shoulders mm. Would have been incredibly risque right. at the time. So seeing that. Just a little more skin. Just a little bit. Because otherwise it feels more like they're teenagers. Game of Thronesing it. Yeah. No, no. Because if like anything more and it would have been too much for what this film is going for. But with how much less it is, it feels like they're teenagers like dry humping. I don't know, man. I I maintain that I think that the sound Oscar they got was for Madeline Stowe breathing and the sound of their like noses rubbing together and shit. Like it was some visceral panting and I was here for it. I thought it had some restraint that I appreciated. That also does not negate that they might be like teenagers dry humping. Dry hump the right way. Everybody's going to be breathing good. Here's the interesting thing is that the, yeah, they're, they're doing it probably, but on the, <laughs> on the soundtrack, that, that track on the score is just called The Kiss. Right. Which is interesting to me. I remember being little and being like, I thought they were doing it. Were they just kissing? <laughs> right. There, there is that ambiguity. And I don't like that. I, I want to <laughs> see more ownership for Madeline Stowe because throughout this entire thing we have seen Cora be a unique woman in regards to how we view women in this society at this time frame mm-hmm. we have seen Cora reject this idea of like well I'm going to marry according to how my father tells me or anything like that like she is going to make up her own mind and seeing her take that step definitively I think would have been more satisfying but it's not necessary. I just think for me, it would have been more satisfying. So is the film on target? Yeah, definitely. I think man really lands that arrow right in the center of making something that is beautifully done, very well crafted, thoughtful, takes into consideration a whole lot of cultural aspects that was not the norm at this time. That he went to all these lengths to include uh, indigenous actors and their perspective and his rewriting of the script several times from what I read to make it what it was when he filmed it. Bro tried really hard and I got mad respect for him for that. I think he hit it much better than probably you could do today. Honestly, the most recent thing I've seen that hits like that in regards to Native representation is Prey. hmm Because that's just not a thing, unfortunately. It should be, but it's not. And here's where we get sticky. Did I like it? <laughs> I'd like to remind everyone that Katie has not seen the theatrical version of this film yet. <laughs> Just for the record. No, but you saw the second best. It's close, close enough. Yeah, Daniel gives me the disclaimer. I tried. I really tried. Like, I really tried to like this movie. And there are some parts of it that I do really enjoy. 
it's just so overwhelmingly slowly paced that it frustrates me. Like, it's one of those movies that I find frustrating because there are these moments where I'm like, okay, we're walking, we're walking, we're still fucking walking. Like, it, it just goes so long. And it's beautiful, but that, for me, does not make up. Like, you could have you could have got this movie down to an hour and a half, like a good 90 minutes, and it would be just as powerful. And then you would have had those moments, like, especially the end scene where everyone is grieving their losses and they are looking out at this beautiful scenery and it's a good four or five minutes of them with swelling music behind and various people's faces reacting to being sad. That's fine, but that's a lot of time spent doing this one thing and we don't need that throughout the entire film. Like, save your four or five minutes of introspection about everyone's emotions for those moments rather than there's just so much so much in this that was like you're taking too long my dude this is just overly wow that's a liam pause i'm gonna i'm gonna use this phrase swashbuckling it feels a little masturbatory at sometimes wow we don't have time to watch these people walk for two minutes let's move it on bro I like it, but it's just trying a little too hard in some ways for me that it was like, if you'd maybe been a little more utilitarian with your cuts on this, it would be a lot more impactful and feel less bloated. Okay, I'm going to hold the audience to help us with this, but after Katie (laughs) watches the theatrical, I would love for her to come back and revise her breakdown in a subsequent episode. (laughs) No, because everything you're talking about could very much have to do with all the very meticulous and pedantic cuts and moves and things that Michael Mann did later. Uh, Agreed. I don't think it'll make that big a day. It might tighten things up a little bit here and there. There will be places where there is speech where there wasn't before. Mm-hmm. But I honestly don't know if it's going to make that big a difference. I still think the theatrical is best. And even the definitive director's cut, as it's dubbed, has a couple of things that I'm just like, uh, that doesn't work because you cut that line out now. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I can see how this is an editing issue in that I feel like man maybe fell a little bit too in love with these long, soulful shots, which is really fucking easy to do. It is really easy to fall in love with like making beautiful moments in a film, but knowing when to pare those down, which this is definitely man's first historical film. Previous to this, you know, it'd been Miami Vice and a thief, Manhunter, more thrillers that lend themselves to those quick cut shots in that because you're trying to maintain suspense whereas in this kind of film like it's obvious he's going for a more artistic look well and actually something that you said katie speaking of the different versions of this movie that are out there and exist one of the things that i hated most about the director's cut the first one and this might go into what you thought was weird about the ending in the director's cut chingachgook keeps talking for a really long time Oh, okay. There's a whole second half of that speech that they cut out because it's a bad speech. Like, it's not badly delivered, and it's not that it's not 
correct or topical, but he goes on to basically say the theme of the movie about how like this world now belongs to his white son and his woman and the future is theirs. And like the ways of my people are gone. And like, but he goes on for a really long time about it. Okay. And so in this instance, like the, them staring at each other, sadly is vastly preferable to the other ending that I got to see. I can see that. And the theatrical cut won't help you with that. But going back and seeing the first director's cut and then going back to this and be like, no, this feels right. That makes sense. I, I like the movie, but it definitely didn't appeal to me the same way that it did to everybody else. No, that's totally fair. Dan, do you have your thoughts together yet? I do. Are you ready for this? And again, everybody, I will be shipping Katie a copy of the original. <laughs> so we will, she's allowed um, to have whatever opinion she wants. However, she does have to see the original just to see. My poor husband. He's like, honey, I've watched this twice now. I don't want to watch it <laughs> So I think some of Katie's earlier comments actually make a lot of sense <laughs> in terms of. Uh, why is that funny? Because, you know, the, the shit she said first when she said before she said she didn't like it. When, before she said she didn't really like it that much. No, no. What I meant was reference the difference in the cuts. I think the whole thing that makes especially Hawkeye a more well-rounded character and some of his funny quips missing definitely impacts clearly not necessarily this end scene, but your viewing in general. One that I don't think we got to that I wanted to mention is uh, when they're escaping on the canoes (laughs) and they need to get the fuck out of there because they're going to get chased down before they get to the waterfall. And so they're like, Hawkeye even says faster, like they're trying to row as fast as possible. And Hayward is just standing there aiming his pistol at him, talking about how he's going to have him hanged. And while he's rowing, Hawkeye just goes, got nothing better to do on the lake today, Major. (laughs) This is such a fucking good line. To get to my breakdown for real, I think the goal here, the objective here was for man to take a somewhat poor and racist story that clearly had potential. And by racist, there are examples you can look up without having to read the actual book. But for example, Daniel Day-Lewis read the book after he shot the film and he said, Natty Bumpo, which is the original name of Nathaniel Poe's character, which sounds ridiculous. Mm -hmm. He's a very different character in the book, I think. And there's something that's very disturbing to me, too, about which perhaps I can't get my head around, but, uh, but he, he never loses one opportunity of, of stressing the fact that there's not a drop of Indian blood in his veins in the book. I don't know if you remember. But he's always talking about how, well, they're, they're great people to hang out with, but, but don't forget that there's not a drop of cross blood in my veins. Where it's like so obvious how much they're trying to display the white supremacy and how natives are savage and not the same as Europeans, etc. So, you know, I say racist because that's the reputation that it has for good reason. Mm -hmm. And he really tried to take it and turn it into a heart pounding, historical, epic war film with some good romance and make it as accurate as possible while showing the subtle complexities like Daniela was talking about of the political situation at the time where it's not just it's hard to keep track of all the different tribes and they're not necessarily introduced and explained and their differences explained like you literally have to go look at historical paintings and go read some history to be like oh these are the Abenaki and these are the Huron etc based on what they're wearing and how they look and their hairstyles but 
even within the same tribes, different villages had different political allegiances or changed their minds or et cetera. And while we talked about what they get right and what they get slightly off here, it's that overall feeling that they really nail of the legitimacy and the accuracy of the feel to it, especially from the native perspective. And, you know, the French are a portion of this that we didn't spend too much time talking about, but even there where we get a sense of the humanity of the French, which maybe their humanity is driven a little bit more by tradition and culture. When Montcalm goes to have the diplomatic talk with Monroe to get them to surrender, and you see this diplomacy of the 18th century at work, and how it's almost like you see the compassion of the French, and then in the next scene after they leave the fort, he's having his private conversation with Magua, where he's like, well, you know, this is what I had to do. My goal was to take over the fort. I don't really care what happens next, but, you know, and by the way, in real life, they were able to keep their arms, but had to give up all their powder and ammunition. Okay. So the real massacre happened when the natives who followed them found them and sort of just tested the waters. They started to like take their weapons away and their leader, I guess it must've been Monroe was like, yeah, yeah, just don't fight them. Just let them take it. And once they realized that they were completely defenseless, they just started massacring them. So that's what happened in real life. In this film, they managed to keep their ammunition. So it's, it's a little bit more even handed again, lots and lots of layers and lots of complexity man is able to give you a feel for this without making a three-hour film which clearly he edited and cut down to not do that i really think that in i think 2007 by the time man was making his definitive director's cut is what it's called i think it was a little masturbatory to be perfectly honest it was someone messing with perfection and I am really curious to hear Katie's thoughts when she goes back and watches the theatrical because to me, for what man was doing, he was 100% on target with the theatrical cut of this film. Again, the other cuts aside and the heavy use of a really great score aside, I think this film is perfect. It is not only in my top at least 20, maybe 10 favorite films ever. But if I had to pick out an actual perfect film where I would say, yeah, I don't think anybody could do a better job with this story or pull off what they pulled off at the time, I think it's in my top 10 perfect films. Lawrence of Arabia is another example. First Man, for me, is another example. So yeah, I love this film. I clearly have some nostalgia for it, but this is one of those where the deeper you dig and the more you learn about it and realize what the people involved went through the trouble of doing and the more respect you have for the product that they ended up putting out. One thing that I thought about when I was taking notes and watching this is how the plot is actually pretty freaking simple in this movie. It's like kind of a road movie. There's some failed rescues and successful rescues here and there, but like the plot is not complex, which I think is what allows for all of the layers of complexity of the culture and the people, the British, the French, the 17 different tribes that are just depicted and not even shown. And I think if the film was 
politically and narratively more complex, it would just be too much. Like it would be too layered. There would just be too much going on. And you'd be like, I can't focus on this. And I need like a, I need footnotes to break this down for me to even understand what's happening. Agreed. I think that's why it kind of like brushes over the history and it's more gives you the feel of what's going on rather than the facts of what's going on at that time. Liam, close us out. All right. Yeah. The objective. I think this is, this has a, a feel to me in some ways of the same sort of thing that drives Lucas and Spielberg and Tarantino, as far as like, I want to make a movie that's like those movies I watched as a kid. Mm, Yeah, definitely. But I think where Michael Mann succeeds, where a lot of those other directors fail is that I think he does a much better job at divorcing his inner six year old from the project. This movie does not have a lot of that childlike wonder in it that you get from Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars. And it doesn't have that, oh, well, this is the shitty way they used to do it. So I'm going to do it in the same shitty way that you get with like middle career Tarantino, where he's like, I watched Grindhouse films and like, yeah, bad Kung Fu movies. So I'm going to go ahead and make a bad Kung Fu movie like it doesn't have those fingerprints on it the way you get from a lot of other directors. And I have to give man a lot of credit for that because I think that was one of the driving forces in him wanting to make the movie. I think in the process of doing the hard work of actually making the movie, I think some other objectives that you guys talked about also came into play, taking this racist source material, finding the good taking that out and then adding more good on top of it by adding more complexity and humanity to these people that were dehumanized by this entire genre of fiction at the time that it was written and really bringing in those perspectives and that nuance that it's really difficult to take something that is belittling and othering to whole groups of people and then making it do the opposite while still keeping the same story intact. Right. That's a pretty masterful adaptation across time. That is an update of well over a hundred years that he managed to pull off really, really nicely. So I do think this movie is on target. I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's perfect to me. I understand what you're saying, but like, I think it's man, it's really good as far as, there's a there's a lot going on in this movie there's a lot of historical backdrop there are a lot of cultural clashes and subtleties but also in the performances and the relationships there is some overt melodrama going on and it is a very big big story and it is very big emotions and To some people, maybe Katie, you would say that that's a mark against it, but the like none of the melodrama stands out to me as being like. I want to be clear. I have nothing against melodrama. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking grew up watching North and South miniseries with Patrick Swayze. Like I really love Poldark, the seventies BBC miniseries. Melodrama is not the problem. I just want to get, I want to get that out there. So no one thinks that. (laughs) No, I'm just saying that 
you know, when you say you're being melodramatic or something is melodramatic. It's often a bad thing. It's often a bad thing. But I think the reason for that is that the thing that they're talking about, it's not earned. It's not an earned melodrama or it's not an even melodrama. Yes. Or like it feels like there's there's not a balance there where, oh, that thing that you did, it just doesn't feel like it fits with the rest of it. Or it just it doesn't communicate to a modern audience. So much went into immersing this production in reality. But it's such a foreign time to us. Mm -hmm. Everything in this movie feels big without feeling stupid. It's big and ridiculous without the ridiculous and the performances and the dialogue all serve that. Like if you try to say a line melodramatically that isn't written melodramatically, you're going to sound dumb. If you try to say a line that is written melodramatically, not melodramatically, it's going to sound dumb. But this is a movie where a character looks at another character and says, She's more deeply stirring to my blood. And any imagining could possibly have been. And nails it. Deeply stirring to my blood is the funniest way to say sploosh I have ever heard. And she nails it. Every single time or when I when I watch this going forward and previously, look, I, I turned to my husband and said, She's horny! Did you get yeah. it? She's horny! She's so horny! I just want like a, an archer level like sploosh. <laughs> You just sploosh here and sploosh there. And it's like, she looks down, then she looks up sploosh. Like yep. it's just, yep. it is a splooshy, splooshy performance, but <laughs> it's so period perfect. Like it's every, it's, it's, that's totally something they would have said during that time. Absolutely. It's perfectly on pitch. Like there's not a false note in it really. So I think Dan, when you talk about the perfection of this movie, I think it has tonal perfection. For me, I don't know if the film itself is perfect, but it strikes a very, a very fine tone in a way that I don't know another production could possibly have nailed. So, yes, I like this movie an awful lot. I love this movie dearly. It's funny. If you ask me to sit down and write a list of my 20 favorite movies, I don't know if I would think of this one, but every time I watch it, I absolutely am completely madly in love with it and katie it's it's funny anytime i think of this movie i swear to god it's only 90 minutes it's not it feels like 90 minutes to me every time i watch it i'm like oh shit i got time to watch last of the mohicans like <laughs> and then i'm like holy shit how is this not over yet because i always want to squeeze this into 90 minutes and it never is but it always nope. feels like it to me it just flies by i'm i'm on for the ride I get it. I get it. I think it's something that is very indicative of when you watched it, honestly, because I think it, it has the capability of being so uh, touching to you if you watch it at a certain age. Oh, yeah. And I just didn't watch it until recently, so I don't have any of those memories for it. But having rewatched Titanic recently with my daughter. You should show her this. I could totally see how this would fall into that same category. If, if I had watched it at that age, it would have hit me like that. Oh, but this is way better than Titanic. I mean, <laughs> she asked She asked to watch Titanic, so I was like, okay, honey. Be like, hey, you like Titanic. Wait till you see Last of the Mohicans. 
Before we let you go, Daniele, I wanted to give you a chance to plug stuff that you're doing now and uh, maybe your shows. Uh, clearly, I got to know you from History on Fire, which is available on all the podcasting apps, and it's great. But I'll, I'll let you give us a little bit of the breakdown. Please talk about your website, your books, anything else you'd like to throw in. Sure. I mean, yeah, I've written multiple books. I'm actually right now, I've been the finishing phases of something I've wanted to do since I was 14, probably, which is I'm, I, I, the books I've written are nonfiction, but I'm finishing a fiction book. And oh, so nice. I'm pretty excited about that. Nice. Congratulations that uh, having written fiction books, that shit is so much harder than writing nonfiction in some <laughs> right. ways. So congrats. So I'm having a blast with it. So that's uh, that's actually a historical fiction. So I'm taking the story of Caravaggio, you know, Italian painter who was also a gangster who was, and I like that universe, that word. So I'm playing with it and I'm putting the finishing touches on. One of the things that I do the most is I release a lot i say a lot of episodes in the great scheme of things not a lot it's probably one a month but considering the amount of research required for history on fire episodes it's a lot of episodes because each episode requires an ungodly amount of research behind it right in terms of what you need to know to speak with authority on a topic where people have studied it all their life and you have to become uh, some topics I've known forever and I study forever others I don't and you have to become an instant expert so you have to just cram six books down your throat and learn it quick to be able to tell the story well and uh, and that yeah I do about roughly about one episode right now it's two episodes a month because I also get to release some of they used to be behind the paywall so I have some of the old ones that most people never heard, plus the new material. And the fun thing about it is that I get to play with any time period in history I want, any geographical place I want. I find a story that has enough epic to it that I'm like, okay, this is a great tale or epic characters. You know, there's something where you feel like you're watching a movie kind of vibe, except it's real history and you tell it in an engaging way. Whether it's one episode or two or three, I wrap up that topic and then I pick the next one that catches my fancy. So it's uh, kind of gives me freedom to explore really any topic in history that I find powerful and interesting and just do a deep dive on it. That's uh, what I do with History on Fire. There are a bunch of other stuff I do, but that I think is the primary thing. Sure. Right what, what's the most central place? You have a website where people can find all your works or, or links to everything? Yeah, I mean... One is the gods of Google are good. So if you just type my name in, books come up and everything else. And then for History on Fire, it's historyonfirepodcast.com. That's where you get the archive with all the episodes. I have about 100 episodes down right now. So You're a very modest man. So I will once again rep uh, one of your books that I've read, uh, Not Afraid is the title correct mm-hmm. which is uh your personal life history which starts with MMA cage fighting uh, mm-hmm. which is very interesting because you are a intellectual and a philosopher but you decided to face your fear of physical damage and fighting and you talk all about that and it leads into some of your um historical background teaching and the rest of your personal life which again I can't recommend enough it's a fascinating story and it was a really great way to get to know you a little bit more so for all your listeners that's a great way to start so um daniele i can't thank you enough for your time we're very very happy to have you on the show my pleasure if we can convince you to come back to do conan the barbarian at some point we would love yeah, to have you on. of course absolutely so 
if we decide to do Conan the Barbarian, that's totally on our Patreon feed. So that's totally where you, you got to have at least two or three glasses of wine okay. and, and, and a couple hours for us to dish about all the ridiculousness. Sound good. Yeah, like block off three hours for us to talk about Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> Sound good. Because Conan the Barbarian is one of my favorite fucking movies of all time. Of course. I love it. I mean, he's got the poster up. We'll definitely save that one for you and we'll definitely invite you on. So keep that in your back pocket and enjoy your evening with your daughter. And thanks again for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you. Pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Have a great one. Take care. Ciao, Daniele. So what are we watching next, guys? So next, I think are we finally wrapping up our much maligned and disjointed series on naval movies? (laughs) We are doing our final naval series film that got interrupted by at least two films because of circumstances. Yeah, because reasons. Uh, Yeah, so we are jumping, turning the dial back to 1935. Woo! And we are going to be discussing early best picture winner, Mutiny on the Bounty, based uh, based on an infamous true story that is told in a not terribly historically accurate light, from my understanding. But this stars Charles Lawton as Captain Bly and Clark Gable as Fletcher Christian and also has one of my favorites and and unsung heroes of early Hollywood, Franchot Tone. Mm. You brought him up before. Oh, man, I love him so much. He He was one of the founding members of the group theater in New York. And then he went to Hollywood and... Made a name for himself. He's great. Love Fran Chateau. So yeah, I haven't seen this for a good number of years. I've seen it multiple times, but it's been a little while. So I'm uh, I'm excited to revisit this one. I think this is going to be my first time with all these damn actors. Have we we haven't done Clark Gable yet, have we? No, I don't think we have done a Clark Gable yet. You've never seen a Clark Gable movie? I've seen Gone with the Wind, right? He's in that. Okay, yes. Yes, he's in that. <laughs> yes, he is famously in Gone with the Wind. He is Rhett Butler's sexiest man alive from that era. All right, I'm just double checking. <laughs> I think that might be my only one. Okay. Although, really, here's the thing. Real talk. If you want the best Clark Gable movie and best Clark Gable performance, you have to watch it happen one night. Mm-hmm. Okay. Daniel appreciate it because it's Frank Capra. It is. Yep. And it's also the first comedy to win Best Picture. Oh, nice. A rare thing even now. And the first movie to win all five major Oscars. Damn. Okay. Not a war movie, though, so I couldn't even sneak it in on a DCE, but... Fair. I gotta ask you, Liam, because not unlike Last of the Mohicans, this is one that has been done many, many times. So for our first time covering this story, why is this the one that you picked up? So I have not seen the Brando version. And I have not seen the Mel Gibson version. Really? I have not seen those. Liam, can I, could I answer this for you? Because it's the fucking Clark Gable version. Yeah, it's the Clark Gable version. It's Clark Gable and Charles Lawton. Like, I feel like there are a lot of good versions of this story. I have heard that the other versions are not as good as this, as far as like the quality of the film. Now, I say that it was made in 1935, so quality is going to be debated by many people right? because it's so old. I do not have any problem seeing the quality in a very, very old film. Bojest was great. I get it. Mm-hmm. Bojest was great. Bojest, I honestly think, was probably better than Mutiny on the Bounty. <gasps> well, let's all find out together. We will. We will. Thank you, listeners, for joining us again. If you 
have not yet seen our Facebook group, go to Facebook and join our Danger Close podcast discussion group online so you can bring up your opinions on these films, suggestions on what other films we should cover, and continue the discussion there. If you have not listened to any of our Patreon episodes, which we have a couple of free ones out there, you can go to dangerclosepod.com forward slash support and sign up for those episodes. We just covered It's a Wonderful Life in December for the holidays, which... There's a couple of war scenes, so, you know, that's our connection there. It counts. It counts, damn it. Kind of, sort of, war films. We'll see you guys soon on the next episode of Danger Close, a war film podcast. Bye. Bye. Bye.